0: Hi, and welcome to the 2017 Circle of Film Awards. From now on,
1: these eyes will not be blinded by the light. From now on, what's waited till tomorrow starts tonight. Tonight. Let this promise in me start. Like an anthem in my heart from now guitar. Know that I'm with you the only way that I can be. Until, Until you're in my a- way. Ladies, it's okay if you stare. Why? Cause I'm a billionaire.
0: You just heard a mashup of this year's five original song nominees, but before we get into the awards proper, I generally like to take a couple of minutes just to address something about the year, or something about the process, and, and, and so forth. And this year, one of the things I wanted to go through was how, from start to finish, this was the most movie-filled year I've ever had. I saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of films released in 2017, and I still didn't get to see all the ones I really wanted to. Like, that just shows how difficult it is to get the most comprehensive uh, understanding and recognition of all the films that qualify and all the films that should matter. Uh, Some of the ones I would point to immediately off the bat are Foxtrot, uh, In the Fade, which the film itself, I don't imagine, would have been much of an issue, but I've heard that um, Diane Kruger's performance is quite good. Uh, I didn't get to see Step or... Um, a couple of others that weren't so um, prominently aware are Summer 1993, Era O Hotel, Cambridge, uh, Shadow of Truth, Death of Stalin, Lou Over the Wall. They just they didn't come out for me. And, and you know, what? that's okay. I still saw almost over 350 movies from 2017. I think that's a good enough basis because I'm fairly certain that members of the Academy probably haven't seen more than 200 so I would say I, I have a pretty good gauge on some of the best films of the year and and I'm gonna get some things wrong you know there are definitely going to be films I don't recognize here that will go on to stand the test of time and be far more important and have much more of a legacy than some of the ones I probably do name here and that's certainly fine I, I'm perfectly aware that this is just my opinion, my, my own assessment. And that's all it can ever really be, as far as I'm, I'm concerned. So the other thing, another thing, one of the other, one other thing I wanted to mention is, uh, this is the third year of Circle of Awards I'm giving out. I did 2016 last year, and I did 2015 a few months ago. And I've mentioned before, you know, I plan to go backward in time uh, in the interim as we await next year's uh, Oscars slash Circle of Film Awards. But another thing I wanted to take care of was I've, I've, I've condensed the categories down from 12 to 10 by combining the lead and supporting actor categories into one category in and of itself. But I did want to figure out a way to recognize films that I've seen after the qualification time that would have made an impact so this year I'm going to do that uh, I'm not sure where in the timeline of this episode there'll be that will happen but I don't want to do it a lot I don't want to you know create like dozens and hundreds of movies that came out in 2015 2016 that deserved Recognition because there wouldn't have been. You know, there's only 60 nomination spl- spots available, and you know, it's a pretty selective process. So, I'm trying at the moment, I'm going only there's only going to be two this year, and I might limit it to two every year. Uh, we'll see. And there might be years where there aren't two or even one, and that's going to happen too. But I will definitely be honoring a couple of movies. From previous years, that I wasn't able to watch in time for those awards and want to give them their due. Just recognize that these are great films that totally deserved to be recognized and weren't. So, all of that being said, I am excited to bring you the 2017 Circle of Film Awards, the newly revamped format where actors are lead actors and supporting actors do not get separated into different gen- genders and categories and are pitted against themselves and they're uh, they're equals And so both acting categories will have 10 nominees and the other and and what I'm what I'm planning to do and this is actually going to be for all categories so I have I didn't I've never done this before I generally my format would be, Name of the category, I'll read the nominees, and then I'll go through each one and kind of talk about them and their impact and my approach to them being in that category, and then I will pick the the winner and explain a little bit more about that. I'm going to try something different this year. Uh, I am going to, because like the nominees have pretty much been the same for the last couple of months, with a couple of differences here and there, they've all been on the website, You can see them there if you want, but I'm I'm still going to announce them all. But I'm going to do them in order from five to one. So essentially, the first movie I announce will not will be, in my opinion, the weakest at the at the category it's being nominated for. So if I'm looking at last year, for an example to give you guys an idea of what I mean, 2016 the best picture race in 2016, I would have announced Moana, then OJ Made in America, then Zootopia, then Arrival, and finally The Handmaiden, which won. And I'll talk about each movie briefly, hopefully far more briefly than I did in 2015's episode that went four hours long. I hope this isn't four hours long. But I, I don't know. I'll pace myself, and we'll see how it goes. Um, so, so it'll be more like that. So I would be like Moana. I love Moana. Music was great. Um, also nominated. OJ Made in America, or whatever the transition I want to use is, and then we'll go through things that way. That is the plan. Uh, we'll see. I <laughs> I may end up just changing things uh, partway through if I don't feel like that's uh, that works. Um. And then, finally, before we really jump into things, I feel like I keep starting and stopping, uh, just to kind of, in case you haven't checked, uh, I wanted to go through, because I did combine previous years' categories of lead and supporting actors, I wanted to go through and make sure you guys were aware of what uh, what films and performances actually are the winners now going by the history books, as opposed to what they used to be. So, in 2016, best male lead was uh, was um, Casey Affleck for Manchester by the Sea. Best female lead was Natalie Portman for Jackie. When the category was combined, uh, Natalie Portman became the sole winner of that category. She's just phenomenal. Uh, for supporting, uh, the previous male winner was John Goodman, and the female winner was Greta Gerwig. And when the category was combined, the ultimate winner was John Goodman for 10 Cloverfield Lane. Going back to 2015, uh, we previously had Best Male Actor winner go to Michael Fassbender for Steve Jobs, and for female, it was Brie Larson for Room. When the category was combined, the winner ended up being Brie Larson for Room. And in supporting from 2015, the previous male winner was Benicio Del Toro for Sicario and the previous female winner was Kate Winslet for Steve Jobs and when the category was combined the ultimate winner was Benicio del Toro for Sicario uh, it is i'm i'm very upset that i had that i had, hadn't started doing things that way from the beginning and so i had to ultimately take awards away from people that i've previously given and I, I do feel bad about that but i didn't feel comfortable leaving 2015 and 2016 with two lead and supporting awards if I wasn't going to do that for every year. And that is why this year has... Um, well, that's why we had to do that. So that has been adjusted and f- changed to accommodate the current format. And that is what things will be going forward. So without any further ado, let's listen or let's jump into... Uh, Let's start. Let's do this thing. All right, here we go. What's this?
1: What's this? It's super califragilistic, expialidotious. What is this? It's just where you wanna be. What is this?
0: All right, everybody, we are going to start the 2017 Circle of Film Awards with the award for Best Tactile Effects. And the nominees are Mother. Mother, so again, tactile effects, costume design, makeup and hairstyling, production, sound. I think the sound and production design in Mother are splendid. Uh, Some of the better sound work uh, this year, some of the better... Production design this year, uh, but the biggest problem for Mother, as far as the effects categories go, is that it's it's what it's best at are kind of split between tactile and special. Uh, you know, its cinematography and film editing is really good, and its production design and sound are both really good. Unfortunately, half of that is tactile and half of it is special, so it doesn't quite reach. Top tier um, in either category, but individually those those elements are very very strong. Uh, you know the the constant looking over Jennifer Lawrence's shoulder, seeing everything from Jennifer Lawrence's point of view, and seeing Jennifer Lawrence's face in reaction to everything that's going on around her. All of those things are really exciting and 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 make and kind of just give mother this incredible feeling when you're watching this movie just it makes it so much more personal and so much more impactful with all the insane crazy madness that happens as the film goes goes on so great a great movie and I think it does really well I think it's better on the tactile side of things than the special side of things to be frank but uh if it were, you know, if I if I felt comfortable to like actually make these categories like costumes and makeup and production, uh, you know, that's a, that's a lot to keep track of, and and I I don't know that I'm quite as um, I don't know that I'm really the person that can someone who can like make that decision down to the very uh, technical aspect. But as a conglomerate, I feel much more confident and comfortable with the films I'm choosing. So. <laughs> mother. Also nominated, I, Tanya. I, Tanya, probably my favorite costume design this year. D- uh, easily, I would say, my favorite costume design this year, it, which is f- interesting. You know, it's not a period piece in the same traditional sense that we're used to. You know, it's not a British film from royalty or whatever. It, it's 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 trashy looking at times, uh, you know, but you have all the figure skating costumes that have to be done, and on top of that, like, the makeup and hairstyling is also, has to be on point, you know, when you've got Margot Robbie, like, staring at herself in the mirror, like, the makeup is just so perfectly applied in, like, a bad way, like, it's intentionally bad, and it looks perfect for, because of it, uh, you know, you've got a lot of, um, bruises that appear throughout the film, you have, uh, and then on top of that, like, I think like the production design is good Uh, it's definitely not great production design but it's good you know you look at some of the houses and structures that these uh that the film crew has to work around i think just the simple um because it's set in such a because of the documentary style of filmmaking almost you also have these talking head elements that are put in a particular location and like they are put there for a reason, and I think the production design and set design on those is is remarkable and, and really well constructed. Uh, sound is probably the weakest tactile element for me. It's good, but it doesn't really do too much special. I think the best sound element is the way that the uh, voiceover is interwoven into the film and, and used to such great effect. It's not but, like, the sound effects and I think the sound editing is is fine. It's fine. Perfectly fine. Dunkirk. Uh, you know, Dunkirk, man, it's incredible sound. Sound mixing, sound editing. Sound categories are phenomenal. Production, phenomenal. Uh, makeup and hairstyling is fine. Uh, you know, it's not knocking anybody out, in my opinion. And costume design is fine. They're pretty much all wearing the same outfit, though. So, you know, costume and makeup, lesser strengths of Dunkirk's, whereas production and sound are are great strengths of the film. And it's certainly a film that bear, like, you, the more, you know, I've seen it twice, and on rewatch, you really, I, I was really paying closer attention to the way the the music and the score and everything kind of blends itself together to give you that sense of anxiety, that sense of tension, that building and, and crescendoing, uh, uh, uh just, just fear and, and anxiety and, and all of that stuff is, is so brilliantly done. And so it has to, has to be at least nominated. Does not win though. Um, next is The Shape of Water. Fantastic production. Um, not the best production. We haven't gotten to the best production from me yet. Uh, this would be number two for production in my opinion. Uh, but the the sound is fantastic. Um, rivals Dunkirk as far as the sound goes. But unlike Dunkirk, it does have strong costume design. does have strong makeup and hairstyling. Just like looking at um, the creature uh, played by David Jones, I want to say. I think. Uh, that is that is a big deal. Um, all the outfits that Sally Hawkins wears and you know, the the way that the clothing has to be set back in time, back in, you know the 40s, 50s. And but it also has to dis- distinguish between, you know, Hawkins and Octavia Spencer, who kind of are the same job, but like back then, they kind of still looked a little different and they were differently put together. And then you have the the doctors and the Michael Shannons of the world, the army, all this stuff. A lot of stuff work going on and and a lot of different facets of the costume design and makeup and hairstyling put to good use. Uh, Nearly, so very nearly, won this category for me. But this year's tactile effects winner is Blade Runner 2049. And it really couldn't be any other film. It has the best production design. Uh, I would probably say that Dunkirk's sound is a little bit better, but it's very, very close. There, are, And then you also have fantastic costuming and makeup and hairstyling just to create this atmosphere, this world that is so unlike ours and also so alike as ours is. It, it really does create that paradox in a way where it's a period piece that's not kinda, but really is set in, like, our not-too-distant future, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like it's ours either, you know, there's just so much happening in that world that doesn't make sense in our world, but feels like it makes so much sense, especially when you compare it to the first Blade Runner movie. Which also had fantastic, like, tactile effects as well. Um, you know, just, just watching, you know, the various... Uh, yeah, I don't know, I mean, for me, like, the production design is what really carries this, this film over the top, in my opinion. You, you don't get much better than Blade Runner as far as production design is concerned. It, it, it's truly a home run. Absolute home run. I'm gonna be very disappointed if it does not win the Oscar, but that is for a later date. So for me, best tactile effects, Blade Runner 2049. And right off the bat, I don't know. I don't really. I don't know. That format doesn't really so it totally work for me. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna adjust it a little. Moving on to the next category. So uh, the next category is gonna be special effects. And The nominees are um, Baby Driver, Blade Runner 2049, Dunkirk, War for the Planet of the Apes, and World of Tomorrow, Episode 2, colon, The Burden of Other People's Thoughts. Uh, So what I'm going to do, actually, I'm going to, Name the movies and then do the 54321 thing. See how that goes. Uh, so, World of Tomorrow, Episode 2, The Burden of Other People's Thoughts. Dan, uh, Don Hertzfeld, World of Tomorrow 1, which was a nominee back in 2015 for special effects, screenplay, and best picture, is a phenomenal film. One of the best films, and it's like 20 minutes long. World of Tomorrow Episode 2 just kind of came out of nowhere. We weren't expecting it. We weren't asking for it. And yet it still manages to not only build upon what was created in the first film, but surpass it in some aspects and give you a completely different vantage point on what's happening. And the biggest way it does that is through the animation and the effects therein, and the editing and just the the way it feels so alien that that's like the easiest way for me to describe it it's these are films that feel so incredibly alien and you look at the animation and it's a lot of different animation styles mixed together and edited and cross-stitched with each other to in a very collage type of way that you don't think would work um you know it's there's a reason that we don't get movies that mix animation and live action as off, you know, more often. It's because it's difficult to make it work well. Uh, we've had some successful ones in the past, but there have been some, you know, not so successful ones in the past too. And World Tomorrow, while it doesn't mix live action with its animation, it mixes a lot of different styles of animation. Uh, if you think back to Inside Out, where they go into um, the that, that zone in Riley's head, uh, the abstract zone, like, and all of a sudden everything was totally out of whack and like re- re- weird shapes and things like that. This is, that is World Tomorrow Episode 2 from start to finish, basically. Uh, you know, everything looks weird and looks strange, but the film manages to give it just enough character and just enough sort of a uh, sort of haziness and 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 edits edits it just perfectly enough that it, it pulls things together and it looks fantastic. So for me, world tomorrow episode two that's my number five. Number four baby driver. So film editing it's probably number one for me there. It's ah, that's a really close one uh, between that and uh, one of the other nominees to come forward. But it's fantastic. It's got incredible film editing uh, and and great sound work as well. And on top of that, it has really good cinematography. You know, Edgar Wright knows how to use a camera, knows how to get the shots he needs for his movie. And you can't edit a film like Baby Driver if you're not getting the exact camera position and exact uh, uh, shot that you need to get in order to edit it, to the music of the movie, like a music video, essentially. Uh, I, I've i worked in the past with, like, anime music videos in that same sort of style. It's not easy, you know, there are moments doing it where it kind of all just happens to work together perfectly for you, but there are so many little minute Problems that happen throughout, like a three-minute video, I can't even fathom how much effort and time went into crafting the perfect, like, ninety-minute version of that thing. Like that is exceedingly difficult, and he he pulls it off with brilliant aplomb. Number three, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. So when wins the tactile effects award. Uh, does not quite get there with special effects. Um, the visual effects are very good, and the editing and cinemator- like the cinematography is is incredible. It's not my favorite personally, but I do think you know Deakins does an incredible job with with Blade Runner 2049. I think that um, the films to come above Blade Runner 2049, one of them. Uh, does happen to have better cinematography, in my opinion, and better film editing. I think the film editing in Blade Runner is good, but not incredible. Whereas uh, the other film ahead of it just has, in my opinion, hands down the best visual effects ever. So it's a really, really strong category, in my opinion. And uh, I'm, I'm happy with where Blade Runner has ended up. And I think you know, you look back on this, Deacons, if he does end up winning that Oscar, I, I'm not going to be too upset, I think it's definitely a deserved win, because he does give some fantastic, I mean, you've you've got to have seen screenshots of Blade Runner 2049 online, they're just perfect picturesque wallpaper, from start to finish, the whole movie, it can be treated that way, and because it's so long, there are that many more opportunities for him to show off, and he, he really takes advantage of them. So, yeah, Blade Runner 2049. Number two, Dunkirk. My favorite film editing of the year. Uh, I know people have complained about the different timelines and the way they're stitched together. I think it's fantastic. I was first time I saw it, I wasn't lost at all. I was totally engrossed. It totally blew me out of the water. Second time, just as just as straightforward. I, I thought it was just as great. Uh, if not more so, like I felt, like the second time I could even step back a little more and really admire what was happening and and the way it was working on me because it was working so well. Uh, it has strong visual effects that are all practical for the most part, as far as I'm aware, but that doesn't make them any less impressive, in my opinion. And the cinematography, I I think it's. Second to none. I, I think as great as Deacons is in Blade Runner, I think uh, Hoytma in in Dunkirk is top notch. My favorite of the year. The shots uh, across the ocean from uh, the during the dogfight scenes. You know the shots of the oil in the water of the burning plane. You know these are shots that really really stick with you and and never really leave your head again. Uh, you know, watching Tom Hardy sail across, his his engine out of fuel, his propeller spinning just ever so slightly, as he sails across the people that he has just com- totally saved and, and really just been the the one that has put put them all put all their like fears to rest. Almost, you know that is that is truly striking, truly remarkable. I, I'm in awe. It's, it's amazing. But the winner of the special effects award for 2017 goes to War for the Planet of the Apes. Now, the biggest thing here is, hands down, best visual effects. I, I don't even think it comes close to any of the other films this year. Uh, the animation kind of ties in with visual effects. Um... I think World of Tomorrow has the better animation, but like there's really good animation in War for the Planet of the Apes. It's you know, it, it has to have animation and CGI and and things like that in order to create the apes themselves and you know, via the mocapping devices and whatnot. The film editing is good, but you know, it's not Dunkirk. Uh it's not it's not Baby Driver, but it's good. It, you know, we definitely get a sense of uh, of how personal and and relatable this this film is to Caesar. You know, it is the third film, it is the ultimate film in this trilogy and we have so much to kind of look back on and this the, the way that the the camera and the and the film is edited to make sure that the film on one hand gives us that close and personal Attachment to Caesar, and on the other hand, lets us experience this entire event uh, from these apes' perspectives, is is definitely not easy, and and I think the film pulls that off really well, and the cinematography is underrated. I think I I don't know that it would make my top five of the year necessarily, but it would definitely be one of my. It's definitely one of my favorites. There are some just beautiful shots and. They're really shots you couldn't quite get, that couldn't quite be achieved in Dawn or Rise, because you know even having watched the three films quite recently, you can easily definitely see the progression of uh, Weta's visual effects from one film to the next, and how much you know when you compare Caesar in War to Caesar in Rise. the the difference is is mon- monumental, and Having the apes be so lifelike and getting it to the level where you can really just put as many of them in on the screen as you need to gives you so much more freedom with the camera to not have to worry about covering up bad CGI and not have to worry about, you know, okay, well, I can only put two or three apes in a screen in a frame at once, so I got to shoot from this angle. No, you have all the options, all the resources, and the cinematography comes out quite brilliantly it, it's it's really you know the the shot of the Apes on horseback you know across the sand is is incredible. Uh, all the snow landscapes uh you know the the avalanche, the uh, the 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 final fight scenes at the end uh you know Caesar and um and Woody Harrelson their final confrontation and how that plays out and the subsequent, you know, the gas uh, tank explosion, like all those things look so fantastic. And that's a credit to not just the visual effects, which are important, but the cinematography is right there hand in hand with it. And War of the, of the Apes, my, my special effects winner this year. It's truly, truly incredible. Moving on to our next category. We are going to move into Best Screenplay. We're gonna jump up a few few notches here to Best Screenplay. And the nominees are Greta Gerwig for Ladybird, James Ivory for Call Me By Your Name, Kumail Nanjiani and Emily V. Gordon for The Big Sick, Jordan Peele for Get Out, and Vanessa Taylor and Guillermo del, Guillermo del Toro for *The Shape of Water*. So my number five is *Call Me by Your Name*. Uh, I don't quite have. I, I remember when I was hearing *Call Me by Your Name* being bandied about as the obvious adapted screenplay winner, which I do think it is. Like all the other films that I have in my in my nominees are original, so it would be my default winner for adapted, but. It felt, you know, there felt like this urgency to get James Ivory a win, and I, I don't really connect to that. I'm not sure what films he's adapted in the past, and, and written in the past, and worked on in the past, offhand. Like he wasn't a name that I was incredibly familiar with. But having seen Call Me Marry Name twice now, oh my goodness, it is so well written. It's it's beautiful. the The dialogue between Elio and Oliver is is fantastic. Uh, the the just the staging of the sequence of events is so subtle in how it's played out, and it's it's so crisp and uh, just just flows from one scene into the next. And it doesn't beat you over the head. There's no uh, talk between the two of them that really just knocks you over the head with how obvious they're being. It's it's very Understated, and I think to great effect. And of course, you have to point out the the final monologue from Michael Stuhlbarg, which is incredible. Uh, I don't know how much of that was ripped directly from the book. Uh, I haven't read the book, but if any of it came out of Ivory himself, like oh my goodness, that's 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 insane. It's truly insane. It's it's ridiculous. I. I would barely believe it but he it's great uh my 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 one knock against the film is and I'm this isn't really a knock against the screenplay itself except for the fact that it's part of what the film was adapted from so that's where it kind of leads me to which is I never fully buy and I mentioned this in my review episode but I never fully buy the call me by your name line of dialogue I don't feel like that worked Uh, but obviously, like, the book's named Call Me By Your Name, so it's really not... I mean, that's a pivotal element, and I I don't think you can really change that. But that is... That's kind of why it ends up as number five for me, and not a little bit higher than that. But it's still great. It is still one of the strongest parts of the movie. Number four is Get Out. Uh, Jordan Peele writes, directs Get Out, and he has... Achieved great success, you know. He nominated for three Oscars: picture, director, and screenplay. I feel pretty confident he's going to win at least one of them. And the film, you know, it, it's it's been over a year since I saw saw it get out, and I keep meaning to watch it a second time, and I just haven't yet. I I'm sure I will. And it may even while I'm like in the middle of recording this, you know, I. I Obviously, I did not record the the four-hour 2015 Circle Film Awards in one sitting. Uh, that took multiple days. This I likely will end up doing the same thing with. So there's a good chance I'll see Get Out between now and the end of this. So I might be able to factor in at a later point. But best memory that I can I can like could sort of sort of dig out of the well. You know, Get Out ha- fell off. And was returned to the Circle of Awards multiple times throughout the year. You know, I, I kept pushing it out for other films, and then a couple weeks would go by, and I'd bring it back into the the nominations because I just don't think. I kept I kept thinking back on it, and it, it was a film that stuck with me, and it lasted, and it kept lasting, and and really being present all these months later, this year later, and uh, the screenplay is a big, big reason for that. Uh, just to have the sort of wherewithal when he was writing it, to just know how to create and and set up the timeline of this movie in such a way that it feels organic, in a way that it just, it, it draws and draws and draws out this build-up to this, this sort of peak that we expect it to hit and it kind of does hit that moment we think it is and then it goes like 10 steps past it and just knocks down the walls around you to really just crush your soul basically It's, it's really devastating in that way and it's a very meaningful film the the impact and and motifs and themes that that permeate through that film are are No less important now than they were when it came out and will not be any less important uh, in many, many years from now. I think it's definitely established itself and made a name for itself to be one of the films from this year that will live on and be in the public zeitgeist and, and be remembered fondly of for years to come. And I think that all started with the screenplay, which you can watch and see play out on screen, too. And it's, it's great. It's, it's truly great. Number three is The Shape of Water. Shape of Water, uh, del Toro wrote this with Vanessa Taylor. And I'll be honest, like, I don't, I think a lot of people are a lot higher on this screenplay than I am despite the fact that it's my third favorite screenplay of the year. And that's mostly because I think at some point, it, it, it's, it's I don't know, I haven't read the screenplay. So, like, that's that's always tough. It's always tough to, like, rank, rank these and, and talk about these when you haven't actually read the screenplay. You have to kind of go off what you see on the screen. And what I see on the screen is a very... Sort of, sort of intimate character piece uh, between these kind of outside characters, and when I translate that into a screenplay for *Shape of Water*, it it comes across far less, uh, you know, incredible and and amazing, and more just like serviceable. And I, I don't mean serviceable as a negative. I mean that as I, I mean that as a compliment, sincerely, because it has to, you know, it's Del Toro, you know, he has said, and and many people have corroborated that this is a very personal film for him, this is one he has been kind of trying to make for, for a long time now, and what he's turned out is a film that is so perfectly representative of his feelings, maybe as a kid, maybe as an adult, maybe as a teenager, and I think it's, it's, very easy to feel these kind of personal issues permeating through your soul, through your heart, through your mind, through your body. And it's all very difficult to put them down on paper or on a screen in a way that feels relatable to other people. I think that is, you know, as an artist and as a writer, that is one of the most difficult things to do, uh, in my opinion. And the way and be, and and Del Toro and Vanessa Taylor are able to do that, they create um, they create these characters and these people who are real and lived in and important, and you you watch them and you you see them interacting with themselves and and others, and it's 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 just it's so fascinating and it all works out so well and it it comes together so beautifully and it's written you know just servicely perfectly if that makes sense if that makes sense it's it's i don't know i don't know that that's how i feel that's how i feel shape of water number two is the big sick and i wish this was like given more consideration for having a chance to win the Oscar. It really isn't being given much of a chance. And I think, man, like Kumail and Emily write the shit out of that movie. It has some of the best humor, some of the best dialogue, some of the best just conversation and exchanges. And it's it's so natural and it's it feels like it happened. And I know it like kind of did happen. Like it's based on Nanjiani's life and and and, Nanjiani and Emily Gordon's real life and and history but it, it, I don't know it feels more real than that you know like you can think you know I I know I tell I tell stories we've all tell we've all told stories about things that have happened to us in the past and we've involved like you know I said this and then they said this and I said that and no matter how close it is to that when that event actually happened you can never quite approximate and, and, you know, determine exactly what was said. You're always going to adjust it a little bit. Your memory is never going to be that crisp. It's, you're always going to change things to make them easier to remember. And I think when we do that, a lot of what makes that moment so important to us in our head is, is lost because, you know, you change a couple of words, and all of a sudden, what somebody said isn't the hard-hitting gut punch that it was, and it becomes more of a sort of, just, you know, just like a, uh, an an inspiration, an inspirational quote, almost, Um, and I think the true sort of mark of, of just how well written this movie is, is in the fact that none of the lines feel that way. You know, these are this is a movie that really does feel like it was just uh, lifted out of Kumail and Emily's life. If, if you like replace Emily's family with the actors with Zoe Kazan and Ray Romano and Holly Hunter, uh, that is what it feels like. It feels like this is the real dialogue that they had. Uh, and and it probably wasn't, you know. It probably some of the scenes may have not even, ta- you know, taken place, or have been added for dramatic effect, which is fine. But that's even more impressive because now they have to r- create entirely new conversations that not only fit into the sequential events that are happening, but have dialogue that feels as as brilliantly lived in and and experienced as the dialogue that really did happen like that's i don't know there's just so much greatness happening there it's it's truly outstanding the big sick and number 1 my best screenplay of the year goes to greta gerwig for ladybird i know i i keep seeing this all over twitter all over the internet about Lady Bird not being as great as it really is, how, you know, we've kind of just glommed onto it with the Me Too movement and all, everything involving Weinstein and all that stuff. I don't buy into that. I don't think that's the truth. I don't think that's the case. There's a reason that this was at one point the best reviewed movie on Rotten Tomatoes of all time. There is a reason uh, that that it is is that important and that special. And was so successful in that way and it's it's not because I think you know it's I don't think it's quote-unquote time to start honoring women I think that's a silly notion you know I understand that as far as like the Academy's history is concerned they have not had a great history of, of honoring uh, women or or black people in general but, in my opinion, I don't think we are simply saying, well, there has to be a woman, and we're picking Greta Gerwig, and we're picking Lady Bird. you know? It wasn't the Oscars that gave them, that gave Lady Bird, like, 200 positive reviews. They aren't the ones that did that. So, I don't know. That being, you know, I think this movie could... You know it happens it takes place and revolves around a girl lived on the west coast uh, who, who grew up in a, in, a, in a house with two parents and presumably an adopted brother uh, and and also his girlfriend that lives with them who come from very little who uh, wanted to fit in with the popular kids and and like that's kind of the story and all of the thi- all of those things are like the exact opposite of my own life to a certain degree. Like, I am a boy. Uh, I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up without parents or a brother. Uh, I grew, up, I grew up with my grandparents. And I, while I'm not gonna, you know, I wouldn't say I was wealthy or super well off. I didn't really want for a lot of things in that way. I, I didn't. And I, I wasn't part of the conversation, but it never felt to me like my my grandparents were, you know, stretching the budget to like accommodate our very lives. I, I don't think we were in those dire straits. So this was not on paper a film that should really connect it to me. And yet, oh my goodness, does it? And this is kind of what I'm talking about when I say like how difficult it is to put a personal emotion and feeling on paper or in any medium and somehow translate that in a way where everyone can relate to it and I don't think I don't and maybe I I I don't know that I've I've seen enough movies or read enough books to make this claim with finality but this is if not the greatest, one of the greatest uh, examples of that I've ever seen. Greta Gerwig and and Lady Bird, just you you watch her. You know this movie is paced so beautifully. It is edited and and cut, and the dialogue is so fantastic, and the scenes play out and build upon each other in a way that you watch this woman, this young woman evolve and grow in front of you and while she's not great and she's not even like the best version of herself at the end of the movie she is on a path to becoming better she has grown and she has learned throughout the course of the movie roughly a year's time and she has developed in such a way that feels natural that feels authentic and you know as much as I loved boyhood like it didn't take Twelve years of filming the same people to get across that same emotion, that same exa- that that same result. It didn't take, um, you know, it didn't take actual real people doing the thing. You know, it was just Saoirse Ronan and Greta Gerwig and this incredible supporting cast to bring together one of the best film experiences I've ever had and it's hilarious, it's it's tragic, it's sad, and I think it's a beautiful film that I know, I've definitely heard people like remark, you know, this isn't gonna last, like, we're not gonna really be thinking about Lady Bird five, ten years from now, I don't see a world in which I'm not thinking about it every week from now, pretty much, and... Maybe I'll track I, I I couldn't possibly track that. But you know, that that's the idea. That's what I'm trying to say. Ladybird is my favorite best and the best screenplay for me of the year. It's it's remarkable. Truly, truly remarkable. Whew. Alright. Let's go. First, I want to say that I've rewatched Get Out. Uh, this is the second day of recording this episode, and there is uh, one minor change occurring in its positioning in one category that does not affect the winner of said category, uh, and that is screenplay. Uh, I've moved Get Out above The Shape of Water after rewatching it. I do think that screenplay is a little bit better than Del Toro's, and yeah, that's that's where that is. That's where that is. Everything else, actually, no, I also... I rearranged the ordering of the best actor position for Kaluuya, but we haven't gotten that yet. Gotten to that yet, so you didn't even know, and wouldn't have known if I hadn't said anything. All right, moving on, uh, let us honor our first film, released prior to 2017, that sadly I saw too late to induct into the year it came out. I would now like to honor it because it would certainly have had found a position in my list had I seen it in time. And the first of the two films to be honored in this year's award ceremony is *Lady Macbeth*. Now, for most people, *Lady Macbeth* actually counts as a 2017 film and would have been eligible this year. However, uh, as I take strict, strict um, uh, orders from Letterboxd as to when a film, what year a film is. Uh, corresponds to Lady Macbeth is a 2016 film for me. Uh, I do include any and all film festivals and, and early screenings and things like that. So 2016. And as such, I didn't see it until mid-2017, far long after I was able to do the 2016 awards. So Lady Macbeth. And love this film. I think it's great. Uh, I did a review episode for it after I watched it earlier this year. And for my money, you know, Florence Pugh would have definitely made the lead actress category for me, uh, which would have knocked out uh, Aoi Cravalho for Moana, which I'm glad didn't happen, but that's what would have happened based on the rankings. She was ranked 10th out of the 10 leads when I uh, pushed the two categories together. And that's probably the only category Pugh would, uh, or not Pugh, but... um, Lady Macbeth would have had a real good chance in. Uh, I'm looking around at the other categories. I... It might have... I don't know. I I don't think it would have really threatened anywhere else. But it definitely was a solid contender for best lead with Florence Pugh. So, the first ever inductee into the... I don't even know what the term I want to use for this is. Honorable mentions doesn't really feel adequate... Um, Maybe, like, the Hindsight Awards. I know there's, like, this 2020 Hindsight uh, group of of critics and stuff that, like, award films from 20 years ago and try to get it a better, try to do things better than they were then. But, so that's kind of, like, taking, I don't know, that that feels cheap. I'll think about it and try to figure it out before the end of the episode. Cool. Lady Macbeth. Moving on to our next category. next category is Best Original Score Slash Soundtrack. And the nominees are Alexandra Desplat, The Shape of Water, Michael Giacchino, War for the Planet of the Apes, Daniel Hart, A Ghost Story, Sufjan Stevens, Call Me By Your Name, and Hans Zimmer, Dunkirk. Uh, So this was one of the more combative uh, Best Original Score years for me. And unfortunately, ranking at number five is a ghost story, Daniel Hart. A ghost story, when you have a movie that relies so much on its atmosphere and so much on the emotions and, and aura surrounding the characters, as opposed to dialogue and and big action sequences and things like that, it's important to have a pretty good score. And Daniel Hart creates a great score for Ghost Story. It is uh, it is not. It is subtle. It's subdued, but it, it's it's sort of more pertinent and more present than any of the dialogue in the movie, which there isn't much. You know, we have a sequence with a lot of dialogue early in the movie. Uh, there's a second sequence with dialogue during the party scene, and, and but outside of those two big moments, it's a lot of ghost subtitles and just sort kind of observation and understanding. And Hart's sound, uh, score is able to contextualize what we're watching. It's able to give us a sense that there's more more going on behind the surface, or if you will, underneath the curtain. And it gives you a better idea of where um, uh, Casey Affleck's character is headed in that sense. Uh, and, and I really just I love that movie. I connected with it greatly. I did a review episode on it. It, it. it moved me quite significantly, and I do think that the score is a big reason for that. Uh, you know, it's tough to really gauge the performances in the movie as much of uh, you know, like how, as much as there are performances, but the the score is definitely the standout performer in that in that movie, in my opinion, the score. Um, next up is the score for The Shape of Water from Alexander Desplat, and this is one of the frontrunners for best score at the Oscars. If not the front, I think it's between this and Phantom Thread, pretty much, and if it's between those, I pick The Shape of Water every day of the week. I think Desplat is one of the better composers out there, and The Shape of Water score is, 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 it's really good. It's just, it's really good. And for me, it never really passes over into, into quite great territory. Uh, it, it's very striking and it, it makes great use of sort of informing us of of all the events that happen around the creature and kind of being the creature's uh, dialogue and voice in the movie at times, which I, I really think is is fascinating and inspiring and You know, I've heard interviews that he's given uh, with the film and and how Desplat worked really closely with Del Toro to kind of create the soundscape and and create the world in which Shape of Water resides in. You know, it's a period piece, but it also has that huge fantasy element to it. And there's all these different characters and all these different layers going on, and that's not easy to, to balance and navigate. And Desplat is able to do that very, very well. And so... I, I really enjoyed the score for The Shape of Water. Uh, number number three for me is um, Giacchino for War for the Planet of the Apes. Now, he, this is probably fairly unorthodox, uh, I think, but I think it's a very underrated uh, score. It's certainly one that I find to be very moving, and the biggest reason for that is because you know, this is a th- again, like kind of going back to this is the third in a trilogy and whereas the scores in the first two Planet of the Apes movies from this trilogy are a lot, little bit more bombastic, you know, you're dealing with much more of much more thrill and much more excitement uh, in Rise and Dawn, whereas War there's definitely plenty of action in that movie, but all of it it comes at the expense of the inner character dilemma going on inside Caesar, and Giacchino is able to beautifully capture how the events around uh, Caesar are really affecting him, and and twisting and turning within his head as he's trying to, you know, figure out what is going on, and how to best approach the situation, not for just his own safety and well-being, but for the well-being of all of the apes that uh, look up to him and follow him as their leader. And the score is able to just build and slowly, um, not necessarily foretell the end of the movie, but sort of like like a river, just so just guide you to it, as as perfectly as as you could possibly imagine. And I I think it's it's fascinating. I think you, you listen to it. It's it's very. I don't know. It, it the the strings are so great um, just the the way the music soothes you at times and almost into a state of like uh, what what am, what am I looking for a state of um, I guess understanding is a good way. a state of understanding and in sort of reconciling and and appreciating what you're seeing and I think that's fantastic. number mm-hmm. two. And, and this one's kind of a tricky one. Uh, that's Call Me By Your Name, Sufjan Stevens. He's not exactly the composer for this movie. Uh, he is the most associated person with the movie in that sense. Uh, because he has so many like songs that are in the movie. One of them nominated for Best Original Song for me. And the problem is that like the score slash soundtrack is done by a lot of people. And so... Sufjan so, Stevens is kind of just like the figurehead of to represent all of the people that worked on the score, and it's such an interesting score for a movie. And more than anything, any of these other films, which uh, you know, none of these movies are musicals, none of them really uh, incorporate lyrics and and song into their scores. Uh, with but but calling by Your name really. Uh, Makes its score and its visual component mesh well, in a with with also adding in like Zufin Stevens lyrics and the songs used and and you know the songs playing when Army Hammer's dancing and when they're all dancing on the on the stage and the song that plays over the end credits like these are beautiful moments and and beautiful beautiful uh, just just combinations of these different types of media working in perfect harmony. It's it's such a close call for me between Call Me By Your Name and our winner, but I, I couldn't quite get over that hump uh, with, with Call Me By Your Name. I think as great as this score is, no score stuck with me as much as Hans Zimmer for Dunkirk. I, I'm an unabashed fan of Christopher Nolan, and... This score is the only score that I can, like, hear in my head when I'm not watching the movie. That's, like, I I really do struggle with, like, remembering certain scores for movies. From this year, though, Dunkirk's is the only one that really stuck with me ever since I watched it. It's iconic, and it's really the biggest reason why that movie is so, so tense. You know, like, Nolan's editing... Like The way that Nolan cuts the film and orders it and arranges it and structures it as this three uh, three segments and three narratives really does help build up that, that tension. But it pales in comparison to how effective Zimmer, Helen Zimmer's score is. It's absolutely brilliant. At, and the, the ticking of the clock is something that you cannot get out of your head. He uses it very often throughout the film. And it never feels overdone. It never feels like there isn't. Uh, It even feel even when there isn't a ticking clock sound, you kind of feel like it's there anyway, because you know that every single second longer that these people are out on this beach, that they're up in the sky, that they're on those boats, is another second closer to to death, to uh, to loss, to pain, to to failure, and. Zimmer does not let you forget that, and that ticking clock sound. Oh my goodness! And the score is so much—it's—it's it's more than the ticking clock sound. Obviously, the ticking clock sound is—is is what a lot of people point to for this score and why it is so memorable. But it's so much more than that, you know. It, It's—you know—having to compare the three different sort of genres of the score between the the mole and the dogfight and the ships. You know that's not easy to do you know he he has to give each one each narrative thread a distinctive uh, sound and then he manages to he manages to do that and then at the end of the film when all these threads are slowly melding together, the music somehow reflects that I don't know how he pulls that off in such a beautiful and almost seamless way but it it's it's fantastic the score is is you know, in the same way the, that it is for a ghost story, the score in Dunkirk is perhaps the strongest performer of all. And so Dunkirk wins best original score for me, for Hans Zimmer. It's, it's fantastic. It's so good. Moving on to our next category, best original song. Now, as I generally do, I'm going to announce the nominees and play you a clip from each song. And the nominees are Evermore Beauty and the Beast
1: And be with me forever.
0: From now on, the greatest showman. From now on,
1: these eyes will not be blinded by the light. From now on, what's waited till tomorrow starts tonight. Let this promise in me start Like an anthem in my heart From now on
0: From now on Remember me, Coco
1: Remember me Though I have to travel far, remember me Each time you hear a sad guitar Know that I'm with you the only way that I can be Until you're in my arms again
0: visions of Gideon. Call me by your name.
1: I have loved you for the last time. Is it a video? Is it a video? I have touched you for Is it a video
0: for the laugh, for laughter after empty arms? Is it a video? Is it a video? Is it a video?
1: Who's the Batman? The Lego Batman movie. Who has the coolest gadgets? (laughs) tricks does the sickest backflip you think my ladies it's okay if you stare why cuz i
0: we're gonna start out uh, with Who's the Batman from the Lego Batman movie. Now, while, uh, let's see, if you go back to, I guess, oh, I haven't done 2014 yet. So, uh, Everything is Awesome is currently nominated in 2014. Uh, so, uh, remains to be seen if it ends up winning that category or not. But, uh, Who's the Batman does not. Isn't isn't as good as everything is awesome. It doesn't hit the cultural zeitgeist. It didn't really have play outside of the movie itself, and even within the movie, it was just more of comedy than like an actual song. Um, as you can tell, like the version I'm using is from the actual film, not I think there's like a song that was done by somebody else, and and I, I prefer the film's actual version with the sound effects and like the destruction and melee in the background. I think that's so cool. But as hilarious as the song is, and even more so than the clip I played, uh, it, it just it gets so much right about the persona Batman wants to be and feels like he is, and completely masks the side of Batman that we know to be true, which is fascinating and, and really interesting, and that's kind of the point of the whole movie is uncovering the truth about Batman and what his real fears are about how being in a family and such in a way that most Batman films can't really do. And this song played early in the movie is able to do that. And for me, a big part of best original song is how it's incorporated into the film. So most songs that are played over end credits don't really have a big impact on my best original song category. Uh, They have to, you'd have to be a pretty damn good song to for me to consider you without having like part of the movie underneath the song itself for me like that's just how I view it and Lego Batman movie definitely succeeds in having brilliant visuals that accompany the song and make it work I I, I, it's great it's great next is from now on the greatest showman this is me is the song nominated at the Oscars that song is is very generic to me uh, I, I love the empowerment behind it, but for me, it doesn't have a lot of emotion uh, in its writing, at least. Whereas uh, From Now On is the song I've listened to the most, the song that I have I catch myself singing at times when I'm not listening to it, and the one that I feel has the most emotion behind it. It's the final song, if you don't include the the Greatest Show reprise at the end with Zach Efron. And while obviously the greatest showman has some problems with uh how it portrays its central character as opposed, as to as compared to the uh, real world uh very um iteration of him the song from this movie encapsulates how in the film version uh Jackman is trying to is, is recognizing and realizing that he has made mistakes and that it is finally time for him to reconcile with those mistakes. And rather than just kind of like push them aside and try to do something bigger and better, he's going to really like atone for them. And obviously I, I have my own problems with the character and, and the portrayal of the character as compared to his real life counterpart. But in the film context alone, the song works for me and beyond that, it's just such a very passionate song, uh, you, you, you know, the clip I play is, is very, sub, is a very subdued part, it's part of the first half of the song, and then the song just builds and builds, and it does so beautifully, uh, with the lyrics, as well as the music accompanying it, and it, it just, it's one of the most, uh, I don't know, like, not fist-pumping, but like, just, uh, just cheer, cheerful and cheering parts of the movie that it plays above. And I I really enjoy the song. It works It works for me. Next is Evermore from Beauty and the Beast. I thought this was going to make it all the way to the end of the year uh, as my number one. It was one. I listened to the song I heard it in the movie. It didn't really stick with me. Uh, and then I started, like I downloaded the soundtrack and I was listening to the music and and Man, I just kept falling further and further in love with the song. Uh, Dan Stevens' voice is beautiful. And while the what what ultimately holds it back from being placed higher in my order is how poorly it's used in the movie. Uh, so seeing the beast sing is one of the worst visual like one of the weaker visual effects from the movie. Uh, it, it's so not good to see and see and watch which is a shame because I think the song is beautiful I think the message in the song is nice but it's a song that it didn't exist in the original movie for or not the original movie but the animated version for a reason and whatever that reason may be it kind of becomes apparent in this version why that might have been the case and to me that that uh sound seems like it's mostly because it kind of just you're, you watch Belle leave and then the song just kind of halts the momentum that the movie has as the Beast laments over her leaving. And rather than just give us like a scene of him being frustrated, we have like four minutes of him singing about how upset he is. And I don't think that's worked into the movie well enough. Despite how great the song itself is. Uh, and that is really what holds this song back. Because I think outside of that, like this is a song I sing to myself all the time. I've sung... I mean, I've watched the movie almost a year ago now, and I just still can't get it out of my head. It's that infectious to me. So that's Evermore. And the runner-up is Remember Me from Coco. The song is, I think, played three times throughout the movie in very, very different contexts, which makes it for a great song in a musical when the song is given different light and different... Uh, backdrop when it's played by different people, when it's played to different people, and in different circumstances, and different instrument accompaniment, and Coco does a fantastic job of Remember Me, of of utilizing Remember Me in that way. The song is beautiful. It's not the best written song uh, by far. Not by far, but it's not the best written song, certainly of these nominees, but it is probably with the exception of the number one song in on my list, the best used with the visual a- aspect. Uh, watching as... Um, oh, I can't think of his name. Uh, but you have Anthony Gonzalez sing it to Coco herself. You have... Um, oh, I can't remember his name. Uh, Gael García Barnal sing it uh, with with his, uh, with young Coco, it just, it brings the movie together in such a beautiful way, and ties Hector and, um, man, I don't remember anybody's name from this movie. It ties Hector and Miguel together, and it brings the whole movie sort of full circle, and that is such a strength for a song to be able to do that. It's, it's truly impressive, and I'm, I'm really... I'm really pleased by how effective it is in what it does. Which leaves Call Me By Your Name, Visions of Gideon, the latest entry of the five to this list. And I could not be more, you know, after watching Call Me By Your Name the first time, none of the songs made this list. I wasn't really thinking about them in that context, but also, like, I was watching the movie on my laptop. It was a screener version. I wasn't really. Um, experiencing it uh, the best, most optimal way. And so when I got to see the movie uh, at the, in theaters a couple months after that, or a month or so after that, man, this song, and by extension, this entire final sequence and end credit scene with Timothee Chalamet is gut-wrenching. Oh my goodness, it absolutely wrecks you from start to finish, as you watch his heartbreak, his, 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 the wheels in his mind are turning and spinning as he's trying to come to grips and come to terms with what's just happened and what, what, how, how, how bitter and also, like, frustrated and sad he is over the, 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 um, problems and, and just... You know, having to experience that final phone call as he does, it sucks. It really sucks. And Visions of Gideon is a beautiful song, incredibly well written, incredibly well performed, and just matches with this moment perfectly uh, if you if you haven't listened to it after having seen the movie, just listen to the whole the song again and try to picture uh, Elio and i think the song makes it crystal clear to like see him in your head you cannot shake that image they are forever bonded that and this song and like that is the hallmark of the best original song it is a song that cannot be heard without feeling and the emotions of the movie and seeing the movie in your head and experiencing it all over again and that is what this song does perfectly. And that is why it wins. That is why it is the best original song. Visions of Gideon. Uh, from Sufjan Stevens. For Call Me By Your Name. Let's now move on to the best supporting performance category. And this will be the first time I've done one of these categories uh, with the combined, or, or rather not combined, but lack of a gender distinction. Uh, as all the previous ones have been were combined after the fact so your nominees are willem defoe the florida project holly hunter the big sick richard jenkins the shape of water barry keoghan the killing of a sacred deer allison janney i Tanya, tatiana maslany stronger laurie Metcalf, *Lady ladybird sam rockwell three billboards outside ebbing missouri ray romano the big sick and Rebecca Spence, Princess Sid. Uh, you'll know, uh, you'll notice that two nominees for the big sick in this category this year. But uh, we are going to, oh, let me find the right year. We are going to start out uh, not with the big sick, as it turns out. It seems like 2017 was the year of the mother, particularly for supporting performances between Jannie and I, Tanya, and Holly Hunter, and Laurie Metcalf. Uh, you just you, There's so many of these maternal figures that really resonated throughout the, land, the, the country and, and throughout the box office, throughout the awards season, everywhere, when it came down to it. And to start off... This list, we're going to go to one that didn't really get a lot of attention uh, from a film that went entirely unnoticed, as far as I'm aware, and that's Rebecca Spence and Princess Sid. Uh, she isn't a mother in the movie, but she plays a, ma- a very maternal figure to our main character, Sid. And Rebecca Spence, unlike, in my opinion, the rest of the the motherly characters in this category and in any category really, uh, it isn't that she is imparting wisdom or or character growth onto the daughter, son, whatever character involved in the movie. You know, this isn't uh, Alison Janney who is solely responsible for how, well, I guess not solely, but largely responsible for how twisted Margot Robbie is in Itania. This isn't Laurie Metcalf who is fighting, you know, tooth and nail against Lady Bird's way of thinking and way of life th- from start to finish. You know, this is a very different story where these two characters, Sid and Rebecca Spence, who are just, who, who start off the movie a little standoffish. And grow to become very close, and while you, you, while Sid is definitely the main character, uh, Rebecca Spence is given a lot of uh, a lot of growth throughout the film, and and she is just as influenced and changed by the end of the film due to Sid's influence as Sid is by hers, and that is that is a that's a good thing that you know it, it's. Not that I think, you know, because I feel for me personally, you know, Alison Janney, her character feels the same at the beginning as it did at the end. I don't feel like her character changed. I don't feel like her character grew at all. And, you know, that's the most extreme example. I think the others, I think Holly Hunter, I think uh, Laurie Metcalf, they change to some degree. But I would posit that Rebecca Spence changes the most significantly out of everyone in that sort of position within their film and I think that is not only just a good thing but also not something we typically see as much you know when we see a parent-child relationship you know the best ones are the ones that are are mutually affecting and so many movies I feel like now recently and and lately Air uh, on the side of really only honing in on one of them. You know, at, looking at like a movie like Wonder from last year. Uh, you know, it focuses mostly on the kids, and Owen Wilson and Julia Roberts are very present in the movie. But I don't feel like a lot changes inherently to them from start to finish. Whereas I do feel like a lot changes for the kids over time. So I really like the way that Rebecca spends not only. Uh, grows as a character, but you know you can feel that performance within her as she grows, as she sort of broadens her own sca- scope of, of understanding and sort of harkens herself back to her own youth when her home is, for lack of a better word, invaded by uh, a young girl, younger girl. And I, I really like it. It's a really good. It's a good movie. Princess Sid, uh, Rebecca Spence. Uh, next up is Richard Jenkins for *The Shape of Water*. He he's so good in this movie, and it's a shame he's so low on my list. Uh, you know, ninth is. I mean, ninth out of every single supporting character act slash actor I saw this year. Uh, you know, when there's probably over a thousand of those is. Pretty damn good, but he he just I feel like there was one one gear that he was missing. I I think he he's 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 very he's a very emotional character. Uh, he he has a fantastic relationship with Sally Hawkins in the movie, and he is given a lot of room to grow as a character and on his own, which is incredible given just how dense the film is uh for him to get that much room is is pretty impressive from del toro and I, I think uh but as strong as he is in his performance i did feel as though it never it, you know i i think back to that movie and I, I don't think about jenkins as the draw you know i think of hawkins and i think The problem is that the large number of scenes that Jenkins has, probably about half of them, are also with Hawkins. And I think she is the much stronger performer in the scenes that they share. And so when you remove those scenes from the equation and you look at the scenes that he has, like the scene at the diner is very good. Uh, The scene with Doug Jones, uh, who plays the fish person in the bathroom, like that is a good scene. You know, he's being very heartfelt. He's being open. he's, He's gushing. Uh, to him, and uh, you know his his sort of transformation from this uh, sort of passive character who finally kind of has the weight of the world pressing down on top of him when he's at the diner, to what he ultimately becomes when he's involved in the heist that takes place, and and the subsequent moments afterward, that is, you know, that's a fantastic. Growth for him, and we get enough from him to watch that happen. You know, particularly the scene between Hawkins and Jenkins, um, where she's basically like sign yelling at him, is phenomenal. And he's able to just you can hear his when he says it, he, you know, she is conveying the emotion, she is conveying. The, the expression that she wants from those words. But he is reacting to them as he's saying them. And you can feel his emotions uh, fluctuate with almost every subsequent word. And I think that is fantastic. That is probably my favorite scene from that movie. And it, it's, you know, he is heartbreaking in it. And, you know, he deserves his place on this list. I think that's a given. But unfortunately, it's just not as strong as the other people above him, in my opinion. But that's Richard Jenkins for The Shape of Water. Number eight, we go down to I, Tanya* with Allison Janney. Now, I think a lot of people expect her to win the Oscar. She's pretty much won every major award uh, in the last two or three months. And I guess I won't be terribly disappointed. I kind of consider it that... If someone I nominate in my awards wins, that's good enough. Uh, but, you know, for me, with, or not, or yeah, yeah, for me, if it's, I, I, the problem is just that I think that there are much better performances. And I think, you know, uh, that'll reveal itself as I go through this list. But Alison Janney's really good. Like I can't take that away from her. She's fantastic in this movie. She knows exactly the character she's playing. She plays it beautifully. She steals a lot of the scenes that she's involved in. But like I said before, the biggest reason her character doesn't quite eclipse, you know, the bottom half of this list is because her character is such a such a so stagnant. Uh you can't and it's it's not that her fault that the character is stagnant. It's the writing and what she was really allowed to do as the character. But you also have to look at it like, because her character doesn't get enough time to grow and doesn't really change from start to finish, and also because you're watching this movie that's edited and shot and filmed in a way that you can see her end result from the beginning throughout the film. Which makes it that much more obvious to me that she is the same now as she was then. And you're looking at it, and because she can't evolve, because she doesn't grow, because she doesn't change, she ultimately ends up with less range to work with. And, you know, that's something that I wouldn't say about Jenkins' character. Now, uh, I think where Jenkins kind of doesn't have that next gear I was talking about, Janice, Janie does. You know, she... Is an evil, malevolent, but but thought, presumably helpful person. It is if you look at it from her perspective, she is pushing her child to be the best that she can be, uh, which is uh, you know the absolute value of that is I guess technically what we want, but she does it in the most warped and twisted way imaginable and you know it is a delight to see her you know kind of working at a 10 from the beginning and for her to actually go up a higher to another level toward the end of the film involving the videotape or uh, the recorder rather is is it's a lot it's it's a big it's a lot it's a lot Allison Janney, I, Tanya, my number eight. My number seven this year is the first of the Big Sick coupling, and that's Ray Romano in the Big Sick. Not a lot of credit given to him this award season, which is really a shame. He is such an underrated performer in that movie. Uh, you know, I think a lot of credit went to Holly Hunter, completely deserved. You know, she's above him on my list, so I do think she was better than he was but he is definitely underrated. The All of his interactions with Kumail, where he kind of is trying to have this father-son relationship in a sense, but he's also sort of wrestling with the fact that it's not really a father-son relationship, and it's sort of just like a, a friend relationship at the same time, and he keeps kind of flipping back and forth between those two things. That is fascinating to watch unfold and he never quite gets it right i don't think you know when they're laying uh when they're falling asleep and he you know is trying to come up with something incredibly intelligent to say and he just can't quite grasp the the configuration of words he's looking for like that's a really interesting and, and fascinating uh scene and you know the 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 one that like we've all seen the 911 joke you know he plays that really well but the big scene and and this is something that's gonna come up again and again as I talk about Holly Hunter and as we get to the best scene category, is the the just the two of them at the hospital and arguing over the what they want to do about uh, Emily and her condition, what they're gonna do about changing hospitals or not changing hospitals, the way that they utilize. Not only their their faces and words, but their body language when they're you know not necessarily fighting, but but arguing and and trying to come to terms with what each other are is is doing and and how we're how they're each uh, uh, approaching this situation, and whether or not they can tell if each other's trying to do what's best. For Emily, or if this has, if this is rooted in something a lot deeper and that goes back further, uh, you know, as Romano says at one point, you know, playing all the old hits again, uh, as, as as Holly Hunter brings up all these old arguments that they had, or all these old things that they'd buried or or whatever, and and she's using them as ammunition in this fight. You know, it just keeps coming over and over and over again, and you know, to his credit, like Romano, like. He plays his character so subtly, and never goes over the top. He never—he's never like really yelling. You know, he can—he raises his voice a few times, but he doesn't try to—he doesn't try to like overpower Hunter in their arguments and in their discussions, um, which I really appreciate. I think that's a really interesting facet to who he is, and when you look at like just the way he half kind of like lies down to take most of the the shit she throws at him it's it's kind of upsetting but you fully understand his character doing that i don't know i I was fascinated by his character definitely feel he was under underrated in that film uh and and i thought was great i think he's great in it ray romano the big six Next is number six, and that's, I think I'm saying this right, his name right, Barry Keoghan Keegan, uh, in The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Now, he was in a much bigger movie that came out this year, which was Dunkirk, uh, but his his premier role is in The Killing of a Sacred Deer. He is, I don't know if I would say villain, but certainly the antagonist of the movie which is a kind of bonkers movie and it's it's tough to really like get too into exactly what his character is and what his character does without going pretty deep into the film itself but suffice it to say uh he eats pasta like uh, like he's insane he ha- he he delivers this the dialogue in this movie so pointed, you know, he, he, everything he's saying, no matter what exactly it is, you know, whether he's talking to, um, the kids of the family, whether he's talking to, um, Colin Farrell, or whoever it is, everything he's saying, it's like, it's, it's so matter-of-fact, and so, like, as if, as if there's absolutely no way what he's saying could be um, not confrontational, but but um, debate—it's it's completely undebatable. And whenever, particularly Colin Farrell, but whenever anyone tries to like argue with him or 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 rationalize or reason with him about anything, you know, he's just able to kind of like, no, that's not how how things are, or or even just like ignore what they're saying and move on to the next thing he wants to say and it feels like such an awkward way of speaking it fe- and and it kind of is but it fits in in Lanthimos's film you know he kind of is known for being so quirky and so strange and Keegan Kogan he just has a knack for it he 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 clings to it so beautifully and makes everything work that in that sense i think he's fantastic uh he's incredibly young so you know and in dunkirk he's fine you know he's very much a very tiny role in dunkirk but i'm hopeful that he will find some some more great roles like that one because he was perfect for perfectly cast in the killing of a sacred deer truly one of the most one of the best villain quote-unquote villains uh, of the year in my opinion next up is at five uh tatiana maslani who, just like her film, kind of like completely dropped off the radar after it came out. And Gyllenhaal is pretty good in it. Uh, it's it's certainly far from his best performance. But, and and I would I would say that this is not as good as Mislani's best performance, which would hands down be Orphan Black, but that's a TV show. But she is really good and stronger. Uh, she takes no shit from Gyllenhaal. She plays his like on again off again girlfriend, and that dynamic, when you add it to the, uh, to the to the drama that surrounds Gyllenhaal's injuries, is very fun to play with. Uh, you know the the way they talk to each other and how they interact with each other is incredibly exciting. They're. Um, they, like, nip at each other and they, they claw at each other until finally things just kind of completely boil over into in this one scene where uh, Ms. line just kind of leaves him in the car and f- makes him crawl across the parking lot by himself, you know, because he can't do it. He, he can't walk. He, he has no use of his legs. And like, that's a horrible thing to do to somebody. You, you can't if, you know it's it's not something that anyone who can knows how to walk can really fathom you know it's not you can't just like wait and 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 I mean that's what he does at first he waits and and she's you know we see her inside and she's she's upset at what they were fighting over she's upset that she left him presumably but she she knows and you can see this like she knows how. You know, it's never going to change if she doesn't take drastic steps. And she, spent the, she spends the whole movie watching his family, watching the country, the, particularly the city of Boston, you know, kind of rally around Gyllenhaal's character and really pump him up and, and hold him up on a pedestal. And she refuses to do that. And I think that's fantastic. And I, I wish... I wish she would do... You know, I wish... I, shit I mean I, I think they could have even taken that maybe a step further I don't know it's been a while since I've seen the movie but she she is in my opinion the standout aspect of the film and she plays such a great version of this sort of girlfriend character that she is she elevates that performance to much more than just secondary to Jalen Hall. And almost kind of overtakes the film due to it so Tatiana Maslany stronger next is the person we kind of all expected and I say we but like film goers frequent film goers awards watchers and things like that is the person we kind of all expected to win best at supporting actor when the season kind of really got into the swing of things and that's Willem Dafoe in the Florida Project he had a ton of momentum at the end of the early December, early like winter, end of end of the fall time, uh, and the movie was on a great trajectory as well. But all of a sudden, you know, you've got Sam Rockwell standing there denying his 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 victory, and you know, we'll still we, that's still to be determined. You know, a lot of time left, and despite the fact that, you know, McDormand, Oldman, uh, Rockwell, and Janney have pretty much swept all the awards that have been set in front of them. I kind of, I really do hope that at least one of them misses on Oscar night because it's kind of a boring quartet. Uh, And Willem Dafoe would be a fantastic spoiler in Best Supporting Actor, if you can even call it really a spoiler. I mean, he is fantastic in The Florida Project, a film that's like so... Uh, it's, it's so, such a, such a unique film, I mean, it's, it's not, I mean, it's, Sean Baker has, pretty much all of his films feel very similar, they have this same kind of quality to them, and Florida Project, to me, doesn't really feel that much different, you know, it's definitely in line with Tangerine and Starlet, but it is, it's it's shot so strangely when you compare it to every other film I talk about on this list and it ultimately ends up somehow, it's all about Brooklyn Prince and it's all about Willem Dafoe and the relationship that they have with every other character in the movie and Willem Dafoe is on the top of his game uh, you know, he's he, he's rarely bad and you know, this is one of his better performances. I don't know if I would necessarily call it his best, but it is definitely in the upper echelon for me. And he he brings such this... this he has to be this sort of suave and confident caretaker and manager of this hotel. And part of that is... N- And 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 I think I assume a big part of like just anyone who has that kind of a job is is knowing your clientele and knowing who the people are that live in your rooms. And to his credit, you know, you learn very early on. You know, Willem Dafoe, he's got everybody's number. He knows what's going on. He knows who's doing what. He knows the relationships, and he knows who to talk to about what. Whenever something goes wrong, and even though he has that sort of confidence to him it's still painfully obvious just how out of his element and like kind of in the deep he is regarding a lot of these kids that are just existing around him and he can't quite handle it all by himself although he tries to think he can and there are some fantastic scenes that show just how strong his presence is in the film. Uh, you know, particularly the um, the scene where the kids are playing and, and ends up with the vending machine. To kind of avoid spoilers, there, and it, it's all perfectly uh, represented by Defoe and and the character who he is. You know, he's a good guy. He does good things. He just tries to make the best out of his situation, which is the exact kind of opposite of um, uh, of Brooklyn Prince's mom, who kind of just can't, can't seem to get out of her own way. And I think that sort of, par- that, not parallel, but that, that sort of mirror image of the two ideologies... Uh, really shines through both characters, honestly, but far more so in Defoe, who fully understands what he's gotten himself into in this role and is able to execute it beautifully. So Willem Defoe, The Florida Project. Uh, And number three, the person who in all likelihood will probably win that award is Sam Rockwell for Three Billboards Outside Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I can't really speak to the backlash about this movie and all of the things going on around it. I've read up on much of it, and I have tried to rationalize it in my head and, and figure out where my own thoughts land. And I, I'm not sure that I could like fully articulate it uh, at the second. What I will say, uh, speaking to Rockwell's character Dixon, he is kind of an awful person and I I, know he just he is an awful person he is abusive he is racist he is violent he is untamed and willing to throw any measure of success out the window in just to kind of satisfy his inner desires and and sort of momentary flashes of um, ego And to the character's credit, uh, by the end of the movie, I wouldn't say that he was the worst person ever. Uh, He has definitely moved up that ladder a little bit. Uh, He is nowhere near, you know, even like uh, Woody Harrelson, you know, he is still a far worse character than Woody Harrelson. He's still worse and Frances McDormand and like those are two characters that have done either done something not so great or have have sort of by inaction done some not so great things and it's it's for some for a character that starts and ends in such terrible positions uh, despite the improvements to have any sympathy to have any Desire to want them to be better to want them to improve to 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 root for them for even half a second during that transition during that change is Truly impressive on who the performers part and in this case Sam Rockwell who is incredibly charismatic uh, in everything is able to portray a character that is so Terrifyingly awful in a way that does make you feel bad for him at times, you know, we see him interacting with his very strict and, like, verbally abusive mother, we, uh, we cringe and, and, and flinch when he's in the, uh, police office, uh, police station with the fire, uh, we, you know, he, as, we commend him when he's trying to help solve the case even after he's lost his job and none of that changes the fact that he has been an absolute brute of a man to the people around him to the people that you know presumably depended on him as a police officer for protection and it's 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 a paradox. It really is. And I'm I don't know. It's it's a movie that is so kind of bathed in controversy at this point that I don't know how it could possibly like I, I just don't see how it will have a, a successful lasting memory. But Rockwell's performance Issues with the character aside is great. Uh, and it, it thoroughly impressed me. So Sam Rockwell for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. And our our, uh, our consolation prize goes to the other performance in The Big Sick, and that's Holly Hunter. I touched on her a little bit uh, in relation to Ray Romano. She is just untamed i feel i said that already but she is untamed in this movie uh she is feral when she is fighting ray romano when they are having an argument she is circling him like a lion she is stalking her prey which is incredible you know like that's not something that you write into a screenplay uh she is uh she is heartfelt when she's talking to kumail about Emily, and and about herself, and her relationship with Ray Romano, she gets, uh, she's upset, and she, you know, she tells, initially, she's very uh, hostile towards Kumail, she grows to, like, be close to him, and, and enjoy, and love him for who he is, and then, uh, you know, then when Emily wakes up, everything kind of gets turned on its head a second time, it's really fascinating to watch Holly Hunter, and her character undergo all these different changes of perspective and situation throughout the film as her relationship with Kumail goes from not-so-great to great, as her relationship with Ray Romano goes from, like, eh, to okay, to great, to not-so-good, to eh, to good again, as she fears for the life of her daughter, as she prays for her... uh, success in in recovery as she ultimately you know is relieved when everything works out and it all just kind of culminates in this huge performance that is so impactful and so so vibrant from start to finish you can't help but be impressed by it and she's fantastic she's absolutely fantastic in this movie Holly Hunter the big sick but the number one, this year's winner uh, for Best Supporting Performance is Laurie Metcalf for Lady Bird. This is the second win for Lady Bird this, this year, uh, adding to Screenplay, a Best Supporting Performance win. And I, I just, I cannot get past how... Deep and layered, this character and this portrayal is Uh, Laurie Metcalf, as Tracy Letts says in the movie. You know, she and 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 Lady Bird, Saoirse Ronan, are so strong-willed and headstrong and stubborn, and it's it's brilliant to watch that play out as uh, as as Metcalf is is so easily sort of. uh, triggered by the way that Ladybird talks, by the way that she refers to herself, her refers to her family, her house, uh, the people around her, how she refers to her life and her future. You know, it does not take much to instantly turn Laurie Metcalf on to sort of reprimanding the thoughts that are going on in her daughter's head. And it's it's that trigger, that little switch that flips that you see it happen, like, you can, you can watch the moment in her face where she goes from, you know, this is just a nice, fine moment, you know, we're driving in the car, we just finished listening to an audiobook, and all of a sudden, you know, she is, you know, Lady Bird is talking about going to college, and, and, and living on the East Coast, or something like that, and, 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 you know, and all of a sudden, Laurie Metcalf can't stand it anymore she could not believe that she has raised such a snobbish daughter such a such a petulant child and but but more to that is the way that she kind of she goes to this other place you know she's she's frustrated she's upset and at the same time you can tell that she really especially early on in the movie she doesn't really consider that what she's saying may not always be the right thing. And, you know, the that very first interaction when Lady Bird jumps out of the rolls out of the car and breaks her arm is traumatizing, you know, like it's very funny, it's played for humor, but it's also like scary that a very nice and peaceful moment between the two of them in the manner in the span of like two minutes turned into something that dangerous and that violent. And so, as you track that relationship between Metcalf and Ronan throughout the film, you watch, you see that when they're trying on clothes, uh, you know, and and Ladybird Bird asks Laurie Metcalf, you know, is this, what if this is the best version of me? And you can, you know, that that whole conversation, you can see Metcalf, like, trying to think, okay, I can't just, like, I can't lie, I can't say that I, I... like her you know uh you know i love her i can't say that i like her and yet in her head she has to be going through that spinning through that wheel and thinking but how can i avoid another situation like the car how can i prevent that from happening but not cave in to what i think is the truth and that's something that you can kind of watch change and grow as the film progresses it's really, really fascinating, and leads to such a wonderful portrayal of such an incredibly complicated character that does have those little small changes throughout the film, uh, all culminating in uh, easily the best scene of the best scene of the movie at the airport when she drives away, and you just and the camera just stays on Metcalf's face. Is, is glorious, and, and incredible. So, for me, you know, the best supporting performance of the year is Laurie Metcalf, Lady Bird. It's so fas- fascinating, so fantastic. Um, incredible. Truly, truly incredible. Whew. All right, four categories to go. Uh, we are now going to move on to Best Director. And the nominees are Darren Aronofsky for Mother, Guillermo del Toro, The Shape of Water, Greta Gerwig, Lady Bird, Christopher Nolan, Dunkirk, and Jordan Peele for Get Out. Uh, So we've got, you know, these are films you know, Shape of Water, Lady Bird, Dunkirk have come up multiple times already this year. And uh, Mother, we saw Mother in tactile effects. Uh, we saw Get Out and screenplay. These are films that not only, with the exception of Mother, are just... They've been in the game and in the system from the beginning. They are, you know, the most recognizable titles in... Up from the year and uh, with the exception of Aronofsky all of them all of these directors are nominated for best director this year and that's you know it, it's tough to argue that the four of them don't deserve it, it it's truly that they, they what they've achieved is is so fascinating so monumental so what I'm gonna do First, I'm going to knock out number five, which is Aronofsky, and I don't, and that kind of feels like I'm belittling his own performance as a director, and it's not, you know, he, he is able to, like, this is a movie that is, Mother is very straightforward in the message it's trying to send, it is far from uh, subtle in what it's getting across, but it has a lot of different interpretations, it's open to a lot of different uh, discussions about what's really happening and what each thing represents and, and whether it's biblical or or whether it's it's personal to uh, Aronofsky or something greater than that or a combination therein it could mean any of the things and the true the, the reason he makes this list and not like a Paul Thomas Anderson not a Luca Guadagnino not somebody like that um is is really because for me, managing to put together a film like this in a way that isn't something that you kind of just like leave the film and kinda roll your eyes and say, Okay, I get it, it's this. Uh, when it's you know, something that steeped in allegory that can also spark an actual discussion about the film to the extent where you aren't actually sure. What his intention was, but you know what you got out of it. And the next person, the person next to you knows what they got out of it. And it's not necessarily the same thing. And that doesn't diminish or belittle what either person felt. You know, it, it's tough to create a film like that that's so obviously an allegory, but isn't obvious as to what allegory it necessarily is. I think that's really, really impressive. And I think more to the point is that uh, Aronofsky just knows how to make that film. Uh, he, he knows exactly how that film needs to present itself to become so ambiguous, but also obvious in different ways. Uh, you know, he he manages to utilize the actors to the best of their abilities. Uh, you know, he gets an incredible form, performance out of Jennifer Lawrence really good performances out of Javier Bardem and, and, you know, even, like, the smaller characters like Kristen Wiig and Donald Gleason are all given a lot of good things to do, and I, I just definitely don't want to say, like, in, 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 imply that, you know, Aronofsky is that, like, in a completely different lower tier because I'm going to separate him from the rest of the, the other four. So that's Darren Aronofsky for Mother. Now the other four who are, you know, we've seen them, they've been nominated for like every single directing achievement around. Uh, It's so tough to order these guys. You know, I think a lot of people are predicting Del Toro to win the Oscar. I know that there's a lot of love for Peele. Because he is black, that for Greta Gerwig because she's a woman, for Nolan who has had such a long legacy as a director without, and this is finally his first directing nomination. You know, it seems long overdue. So there are definitely narratives for all four of these people to win that trophy uh, uh, next Sunday night. It's just, you know, I in a perfect world, you know, we wouldn't have to pick one. And, and like they say all the time, you know, it's an honor just to be nominated. It's an honor just to be nominated. And it is, it absolutely is. You know, it's, it's, you can't win if you're not nominated. And the fact that these four people made it to this point, uh, Together in this year, like it's just kind of this perfect storm. You have, you know, like I said, you know, one of you know a woman. Um, you know, you have a, a British man. You have a black man. You have a a a Mexican. I think Del Toro, Mexican Mexican man, Spanish Hispanic. I'm not 100 sure about that one actually. He is del toro Mexican I was right um you know you have all the, these four different people from completely different uh, I don't know ethnicities slash uh demographics and they've all created incredible films you know uh it's 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 kind of remarkable and I don't want to take anything away from them but I, w- I just but just to say that you know, Del Toro, who is my number four, uh, you know, they, they, a lot of people have referred to Shape of Water as a passion project, a very personal project of his, and, you know, it it shows in the movie, he crafts it so beautifully, so brilliantly, you know, Lady Bird, Greta Gerwig, who's my number three, uh, this is hopefully just the start of an incredible and long directorial career for her, Uh, I thought she was an incredible actress, She's been nominated in the past for acting by me, twice, and for her to some for, for her first written and directed film to be not only nominated in both categories in my by me, but like she won best screenplay for me. She was nominated by both for the Oscar as well. That's impressive. That's incredible and a huge achievement. And I can't wait to see more of her from her because I think Lady Bird is absolutely astonishing. Uh, My number two is Peele for Get Out. This is also his directorial debut. And he also wrote the film. He was nominated for both for me and the Oscars. He created this entire new lexicon for which we can talk about these kind of issues. He opened up a conversation that needed to be had. Uh, he, He just kind of blew the door off the hinges when Get Out came out a year ago which is incredible. Uh, it's it's truly astonishing, but for me, I pick, my pick is Dunkirk and Christopher Nolan, and it's, you know, he, he is someone, he is a director, he is a, a, a filmmaker who, if you watch all of his movies, if you've seen them all, he loves to mess around and play with time and perspective, and While this may not be the most ambitious in that sense, it is incredibly ambitious in that he takes a kind of film that is typically regarded with very much respect and esteem, the war film, and then he adds his own layer of convolution (laughs) to it uh, by giving it three distinct narratives, each transpiring over a different period of time, interweaving them, you know, I talked about this when I went over Hans Zimmer's score, and the fa- the way that Nolan puts this film together is nearly flawless. Uh, you know, he it's been remarked, you've probably seen this on Twitter or somewhere, you know, you never see the Germans in this movie. You never see the Nazis. This is all survival. And I think that is, at its core just the, the most impressive element is how perfect and uh, 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 well-constructed and sculpted this film is. You know, it doesn't, it's, it's short, it's one of his shortest films, and it's able to convey a huge range of emotions that are all generally negative until the end of the movie, and you kind of just can't help but be drawn closer and closer into the movie as the ticking clock passes. It's, it's, it's so remarkable. It is so, so, so remarkable. My best director is Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk this year. That's what I, that's what I've landed on. Uh, Which marks the second win for Dunkirk this year. Director and score. Um, Yeah, so... Dunkirk and Ladybird, both with two wins right now. And we have three categories remaining. Let us go to Best Scene. So, the nominees are Circling in the Hospital, The Big Sick, Airport Departure, Ladybird, Omelette, Phantom Thread, Ballroom Scene, The Square, and Slipping Away. World of Tomorrow, The Burden of Other People's Thoughts. So, this, for the first time, uh, you know, when I look at last year's best scene nominees, all of them were nominated in other categories. And I look at 2015, all of them were nominated in other categories. Two of the five nominees in the best scene category this year, it's their only nomination, which is kind of. Impressive and, and striking to notice and, and realize. But those are, are five and four. So we'll talk about those first. And my number five is Omelette and Phantom Thread. Uh, spoilers if you haven't seen Phantom Thread, kind of, because this is one of the last scenes of the movie. Uh, we, I talk about it briefly in my review episode, but there's as as many as many problems as i may have had with the film upon watching it i do still think it's a good film but i i also this final scene is fantastic uh it is the best acting in my opinion from either character the way or from actor rather and, and the, the way that they confront each other and you see vicky kreps place the plate in front of day Lewis. he knows what it's on, what's on it he knows what he's getting himself into. he knows what's happening and just goes for it. you know what what transpires is so meticulously uh, uh, crafted that you can't help but just just love this moment it it has you on the edge of your seat. You are just waiting for the other pin, other other ball to drop, and I thought it was fantastic. It I wouldn't say salvaged the movie for me, but it definitely you know made me that much more interested in the movie I was seeing. I I really did think it it was something special to to watch this this interaction between these two people. I absolutely love that scene. My number four is The Square, uh, the ballroom scene. And if you haven't seen The Square, I don't blame you. It's a foreign language film. It didn't really get a big release here. But of the foreign nominee, foreign language nominees this year, it's probably the most well-known. Perhaps. Uh, but and and to to its credit you know like the film is pretty good but it doesn't have the overarching narrative and and substance that it really needs to uh to contend in any of the other categories i think um Kleis bang who is the main actor was the only was the last uh, <laughs> thread for the film in in the lead category but he did not make it there and this scene doesn't really feature Clive Bang. It's Dominic West and um, and Terry Notary. If you don't know who Terry Notary is, he plays Rocket in the, War, the Planet of the Apes movies. He is the mocap uh, uh, performer for Rocket, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, he's done a lot of mocap, a lot of, like, creature work. And in this movie... What they, they, you know, he's perfect for what they need him to do. He, this is his only scene, really. And he just kind of enters this ballroom. There's a hundred people or so in it. He's got these sort of mechanized um, front uh, limb things that make him, help him walk as if he were an ape. Just like he were in was in, in Planet of the Apes. And he just kind of acts like an ape in this ballroom scene. And to kind of not go too deep into the spoilers of it, it gets pretty he gets pretty aggressive with Dominic West. He, you know, he he sees another alpha male threaten him, and so he 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 challenges the other the, this alpha male character and puts him in his place and you know, all of a sudden the atmosphere drops. In them in the room and it's no longer oh this is fun oh this is cool this is exciting no 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 this is kind of scary and then it goes further and you know I remember watching this half horrified watching what was happening because you're kind of stunned at first because of what's taking place and with each subsequent uh, elevation to the narrative it gets that much more Terrifying, um, you know, when he takes a woman out of her seat, and you know, you have got people trying to, you know, he is he is a big guy. He is he is not tiny. He is a strong, massive human being, and it's it would be scary to even attempt to to uh, to change his mind about something, and you kind of get the sense that there are a lot of people in that room that want to stop him from what he's doing and they don't feel like they can and this scene it's played as like an art exhibit like this is his art and so the whole time you have to kind of wonder well how much how how far is he going to take this you know does he how how ingrained is he in the mind of an ape, in the mind of a monkey, that he is willing to to act like one to this degree, to this extent, and, and is there any way to to pull him back from the brink? Uh, you you're not sure. You you don't know what the answer to that question is, and that's also terrifying. Um it is it is not an easy scene to watch, and you don't really feel great uh, when you come out the other side of it. And I think that's the intention, and if it is, that is, it, it works. It works so well. So that's the ballroom scene from The Square. Our number three this year, uh, come. we go back to The Big Sick um, for its fourth nomination so far, Uh, with the scene of circling in the hospital and I did touch on this talking about Ray Romano and Holly Hunter so I don't have to go too deep into it Uh, the the scene where they're arguing about what whether or not the doctors know what they're doing whether they're in the right hospital Uh, Holly Hunter wants to transfer uh, Emily to another hospital Um, and Romano and Kumail are both kind of trying to talk Talk her out of it. She asks Kumail for her phone, or well, he. She's trying to call to to transfer Emily. Raymond Ray Romano takes the phone away from Holly Hunter. Um, she asks Kumail, or no, she asks Kumail for the phone. He gives it to her. She tries to unlock it. He unlocks it. She's calling it. Then Ray Romano takes it away from her, and then they start to fight. She's circling him, as I mentioned, like like a predator, and. You know, she, she's bringing up these old fights that they've had. And, and Romano's like, look, I, how he's like, I don't know what you want me to say about those things. They've happened. Uh, and she's just like, exactly, you know, like, what is there left to say? Kind of, that's the attitude between the two of them. And it just so perfectly encapsulates this bu- bubbling over uh, rage between these two characters. And how difficult and trying this entire circumstance is... You know they don't want to be in this hospital. They don't want to have to deal with any of this shit, and yet they're stuck here because their daughter is in grave, grave need of them. And th- there's not much else they can do. And it just you, tensions run thick uh, in moments like that, and it, it's it's unfortunate, but it makes for a fantastic scene in movie in the movie, and and High Hunter. Again, it is incredible in that scene. Truly, truly great. Number two is World of Tomorrow, episode two, The Burden of Other People's Thoughts. And uh, the scene is slipping away, is how I describe it. It's coming towards the end of the film. It's a short film. So if you haven't seen it, go see it. Uh, it's, it's. I think you can like download it on Vimeo or, or YouTube or wherever at this point. And the scene comes at the end of the film. We've watched uh, Emily Prime and Emily Four interacting throughout the film. You know, Emily Four wants to absorb the memories of Emily Prime in order to become her own person. And this final moment, she is—they t- have taken this long journey into each other's minds. And at the end of it, we finally come to terms with Emily Four, who isn't really a version of Emily uh, and you want she wants to be and it's kind of tragic because at the end of the film you know this whole process is for her to become a copy of Emily Prime and by the end of it you really know and you can tell that she doesn't want that anymore you know she has kind of become a gr- attached to who she's been in her own life and it is so sad she's dancing in this final scene, uh, she wants to be a ballerina, a ballet dancer, and, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very sad, it's a very emotional moment, in my opinion, uh, she, you know, she says how that, you know, for once she, she feels beautiful, it feels beautiful, and now she's just slipping away, and it's kind of like she's dying, this, this character that we we came to love and understand just kind of dies away and in the shell of their body we find another copy of Emily Prime and that's very very sad and unfortunate uh, it, it's really upsetting um, but it is what happens and that's that's the way things are, and and you know she ends up uh, singing a line from the first world of tomorrow. Uh, what a happy day it is, and it's not a happy day. It's such a sad day. <laughs> Awful movie, and then I love it. It's so good, and it really puts the perfect sort of cherry on top of that cake. Uh, it, it's it's remarkable that Don Hertzfeld created a film as poignant and an impressive that was a sequel that we never really expected or asked for to a film that was even greater than this this one Uh, it's it's something special and, and unique but the winner pulling in the the film's third circle of film award of the night is Lady Bird for the airport scene and uh, the airport departure scene... It, it depends how how loosely you want to, to st- put, uh, put brackets around it. Um, but I'm going to start the scene when they pull up at the airport. And end the scene when we cut to Ladybird in New York. So you have... And obviously spoilers, this all really happens at the end of the movie. Um, you have... Tracy Letts and Laurie Metcalf dropping Ladybird Saoirse Ronan off to go to the airport, and um, Ronan looks at Metcalf as she's like getting all her luggage out of the car, and she's like, "You're not coming in with me." She's like, "Well, they don't even really let you pass the gates now, anyway." And so Tracy Letts and Laurie Metcalf go into the airport, and Metcalf drives away, drives off. She leaves the loading area. And the camera fixes on her face. We don't go inside with Lady Bird, who is our main character. We don't follow her in. We, f- we stay on Metcalf. And slowly, you just watch her heart break. Her face displays just how much pain and anguish is going on. As she's trying to come to terms with how she feels about her daughter. How, how she feels about her daughter leaving how much she wants her to stay but doesn't want her to like change but wants her to change and like all these conflicting feelings and emotions going through her head and she starts to cry and she's she immediately turns back onto the on-ramp to go back to the drop zone and she she's emotional she she looks she looks hysterical and and absolutely not in control of her feelings at that moment, she parks the car, she runs inside just in time to miss Ronan and let's wrap her in a hug and um it's it's it sucks you know she it took her that long to to realize and uh it, it was just a little too long. It just wasn't fast enough. You know, she's that stubborn. We learned that early on in the movie. She is just too stubborn. And that's the truth. Uh, You know, and to the film's credit, like it's not like Lady Bird kind of asks and forces her mom to come in with her. It's not like she stays and gives her a hug and and a kiss. You know, she is just as stubborn. She's not going to, you know, stand there and and she's not going to, like, cave and start begging her mom for that affection and that love now you know, that's not how she's been raised, that's not who she is either, and it's so unfortunate that these two characters couldn't, uh, just, just get on the same page, and I wish I could, like, add this following scene to this scene, I, I, at first I was going to, but I decided not to, uh, but the scene after this is just as powerful, it's, it's really depressing, um, and I find it that this, kind of, to talk about this category more as a whole, like, I find this happens a lot every year in that through, till, like, by the end of the summer, generally the best scenes that i had seen this year, that year, are, like, action scenes and comedy scenes and things like that, but by the time, like, the, I'm, like, finalizing these the nominations, they're pretty much all depressing and, like, scary and sad, and that's kind of what happened this year too. <laughs> and uh, what I kind of see is a trend going forward. So for me it's the it's the airport scene in Ladybird. It, it gets me. It gets me so hard. It affects me so much is how I mean to say that actually. Yeah, that's what I meant. Um, great. <laughs> so that leaves us two categories, but before we get to those, uh, it's time for the other film to join Lady Macbeth, uh, in the currently, uh, the working title of honorable mention films. Uh, so these are films that came out and, and were technically released the year in, in one year. I didn't get to see them in time and they would have made an impact then. And so the second film is another 2016 film, uh, and that is Personal Shopper. Uh, this stars Kristen Stewart, and it's she plays a character who uh, is, you know, someone who is too famous to do the shopping for themselves, hire somebody to do that for them. That is what Kristen Stewart does, and she also has to deal with her dead brother, who is potentially talking to her from beyond the grave you kind of have to watch the movie and make that determination for yourself and uh, I think it's it's a very beautiful movie it is not you know it's not gonna be my top ten of the year but in 2016 Kristen Stewart would 100 percent have contended for lead actor alongside Florence Pugh uh, which if that knocks out um, Aoi Cravalho, who was number 10 in 2016. Uh, number 9 was Adam Driver and Patterson. So those would have been the two people whose nominations would have been stricken. Ha, but uh, just things working out the way they are, they they held on to them, and these films will now be immortalized in a different way. And uh, Personal Shopper, unlike Lady, be- Lady Macbeth, might have actually uh, broken into a couple of other categories. Um... Considering that like it happened it happened late and doesn't really factor in, I don't know approximately where it would have landed if it would have landed in director or screenplay. I think uh, Olivier Assayas is the director. He he's great. Um, it totally could have ended up in director and screenplay as well. I think it's an incredibly well-written film. Uh, and maybe scene. I don't know. I probably not seen, but potentially scene. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's definitely a film that I really enjoyed, that I kind of fell in love with when I saw it, and wish that we'd had wish that I'd seen it in time to in- include it in last year's awards. But there's always going to be a couple of those. So, personal shopper in the currently titled honorable mentions, but we'll definitely I'll definitely think of a better title because I don't like that one at the moment. So, Lady Macbeth and Personal Shopper become the first two films to be added in, in hindsight. But we now have to get into our penultimate category, and that is Lead Actor. And the nominees are Timothee Chalamet, Call Me By Your Name, Sally Hawkins, The Shape of Water, Daniel Kaluuya, Get Out, Jennifer Lawrence, Mother, Francis McDormand, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Robert Pattinson, Good Time, Haley Lou Richardson, Columbus, Margot Robbie, Itania. Sertia Ronan, Lady Bird, and Andy Serkis, War for the Planet of the Apes. Some great, great people in this list, honestly this one was a lot more difficult for me uh, when I combined the two categories to determine like who which number one uh, male or female would actually come out on top it was incredibly close and I've still kind of in my head gone back and forth but I haven't changed it since I since I combined the two but let's let's start at the bottom uh, number 10 for me is Haley Lou Richardson for Columbus now, she, she is really good in this movie. Uh, she and John Cho develop an incredible re- um, repertoire and relationship between the two of them. You can listen to my review episode. Uh, I really do love her character. And Haley Richardson plays her with such a fantastic nuance and gives such interesting and fantastic life to her. I, I was reminded by um, Hayley Steinfeld in... Uh, Edge of Seventeen from last year. I think they're very similar characters uh, dealing with sh- issues and problems that they're they're kind of not old enough to really have the experience to get through. And they each kind of approach things in a way that isn't necessarily the best option. And I thought that was really interesting. I love Haley Richardson in that movie in this movie, and her I'm so excited like to see her and other things and hopefully to see her kind of develop more indie cred as it were I just think the film itself is so brilliant and so special and so unique and a big part of that is Richardson's performance and her the way her character Goes, undergoes great changes throughout the film. She, she starts out very resolute, very steadfast, uh, but with this sort of dream in the back of her mind, placed on the back burner for years now, and slowly she's able to not only come to terms with the level of selfishness that comes with like aspiring to be the thing you want to do and be, but also to have have the wherewithal and benevolence to incorporate John Cho's character and his problems and his dilemmas into her own life, and to take those on and also give them their own credence and weight. I think that's just it's it's awesome. <laughs> I don't know. it's just awesome. It's so cool. So, yeah, for me, Halo Richardson's great. Uh, but number ten for me this year. Number nine is Margot Robbie for *I, Tanya. She's great, uh, but I do think that her big moment comes toward the end when she's in front of the judge. And if you've listened to most reviews about the film and people talk about her performance, I think a lot of them kind of cite that as her best moment. And I I agree. Uh, I do. It is kind of a little. Silly when like they say oh, oh she was fourteen and da, da 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 and then they flash to Margot Robbie in braces and it's like mm, I don't think so. uh, But I don't know like the it, her character kind of suffers from the same problem as Janny's, I don't think they're necessarily. I think she does change a little bit throughout the film, but the problem with a character who you see at the end of the of her narrative timeline. Um, From the beginning through the end of the film, and sprinkled throughout, you know, we see like the present day version of Tanya Harding, played by Margot Robbie, constantly throughout the movie, and then we're flashing back to what she used to be as a kid, as a young adult, and the problem, like the benefit to those elements, is to see the contrast and see the differences, and where this really hurt. Alison Janney is there, there weren't many. Uh, there are a few uh, for Roby, in my opinion, not as many as I think there kind of could have been. Um, because I think the problem is that the movie, while we see Hart, uh, Roby as Harding professing that, you know, she was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, a lot of this stuff was out of her control, she didn't really have much to do with the events that took place. The film, when you flash back into it, also projects the same image, and I think that if if the film had given Tan, uh, Roby uh, the chance to kind of open up a little bit more into other possibilities, I think that could have been very interesting. As it is, she's just great, you know. Like there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, and I think, in my opinion, she's a she, her performance is better than Janny's. Uh, I was very taken by it. I thought she was incredible, so good. Uh, number eight is uh, the 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 Frances McDormand from Three Billboards. I'm definitely not as high on her performance as a lot of people. I think she is definitely no Saoirse Ronan. She's definitely no Sally Hawkins, and. Uh, the I mean I mean she's no everyone else on this list. I think there is a big gap for me between number seven and eight, and Frances McDormand is the best of the like great performances that I saw as leads this year, but everyone above her I think is just in a completely different tier, and I'm not super upset that like she's winning all the awards. Obviously I think she's fantastic, uh, but but. I just, I don't know, I, I just think her character is so of the moment, and doesn't really elevate beyond that, and that's, I I don't know, I always feel like I have to, like, neg- qualify my lower-ranked people with negative qualities, but there are so few with any of these 10 people that That's really difficult to do. I just, I liked and think that the other performances are better. That's just really what the truth of the matter is. Frances McDormand is great. Um, The scene, uh, most of the scenes she has, the monologues she gives, they're all fantastic. They're all delivered perfectly. She's a force of nature. But there are people that I think are better. And first among them is Daniel Kluya for Get Out. He is... I I watched the movie, as I mentioned, recently uh, for a second time. And it did move him up. So he was below Frances McDormand before, just like a few days ago. And now he's above her. Uh, I think he was actually uh, ninth before. And he moved up two spots. So he leaped over Roby and McDormand. Uh, I noticed so many more things. uh, Just the subtle... Performance, you know the way you can see in his performance the ingrained societal uh, conditioning, and how it <laughs> and how it seems so ludicrous, you know, it seems so absurd when the truth, or or at least more than like what what he. Pretends is the reality is going on. You know, it's not just casual racism that he's experiencing. It's so much more than that. The audience can see that, and you know, his his friend in the TSA can ab- absolutely see that, and he's not even there. And yet, because of how conditioned uh, black people are, it's it's it. They're presented and g- displayed not display, but, but that these moments and these confrontations are presented in such a way that like, well, of course he would just kind of nod his head and be like, "Uh uh-huh, sure. Sure. You would have voted for Obama a third time, you know, like, oh my goodness. Like how many times has that happened out in the world? Hundreds, thousands, millions. I don't even know. Tens of thousands. It's, it's, so like on that level you get that he's just kind of like okay going with the flow. But then as we watch and the stakes get turned up higher, the the tension builds, the horror aspect continues to to grow. He continues to act that way. And that's there's this there's a breaking point where it no longer becomes oh I understand, I get that and it turns into no why why aren't you doing anything about this why aren't you like pay more attention don't you see what's happening and it just gets you get you as the audience member get further drawn into this movie deeper and deeper and deeper and it doesn't make enough sense it's it's not it's unfathomable that that this is what's happening and yet you're watching it and at the end of the day you know that he he's just doing the thing that he's been sort of conditioned to do that our society has conditioned him to do and that is terrifying and Kaluuya is able to own with just his performance pull that off you know every time he talks to Rose and tells her you know everything's it's alright I'm alright I'm fine you know and I'm like you're not alright things are not fine Chris things are not fine and and he is resolute and will not budge from that and and yet when he does figure the truth out you know it's it's not like he doesn't play it like oh my gosh I can't believe I didn't see this it's like all right I'm I'm deep in it what what can I do how do I get out of this you know he is he sticks to that character he is exactly Chris the whole time and it's 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 awesome. It's it's so cool. He is incredible. Uh, I loved Kaluuya in this movie. He's great. My number six is Timothee Chalamet for Call Me By Your Name. I recently heard that it, his name was pronounced Timothee, not Timothy. Uh, so, Timothee Chalamet. Timothee Chalamet. He, I mean, you can sum this performance up to that final shot in front of the credits. It's Kind of insane. But throughout the whole movie, Chalamet gives a very just just boyish performance that, you know, the way he he kind of pokes fun at Army Hammer throughout the film. You know, like, is he when he says, is he gonna is that how he's gonna say goodbye to us? Later? And just he's able to affect that other that that American accent and he he just he has such a fascinating, like, presence about him in this movie, and I loved it, absolutely loved it. I think he does such a good job, uh, just giving into this character, and so deep in he's into this character so deep that when you know he's doing things that aren't necessarily kind of seem a little off, it's a little strange, you know, when he puts the un, um the swimming shorts on his head and the peach scene, you know, you get, you just, you, you're in, you buy it, you, you totally believe he is this person, he is Elio, and he takes you through this emotional journey with him, and then he kill, then he just absolutely crushes your heart when you watch him in that end credit scene, absolutely crushes it. Timothee Chalamet, for Call Me By Your Name. My number five is Robert Pattinson for Good Time, uh, a movie that came out like midsummer, I think, and it got a lot of like indie play for Pattinson as well, but not didn't really amount to much more beyond that, which is a shame. Uh, I, I went to this movie without really any idea of what I was getting into, and whew, this is. A thrill ride this is so beautifully made and so beautifully acted, not just by Pattinson by the entire cast, but Pattinson was the standout. I know a lot of people point to um I think it was Benny Safty who plays the brother. one of the Safty brothers plays the brother the Safty brothers who directed it but for me it was it was Pattinson who who led this film and anchored it. You know, he is his character is so interesting. He constantly finds himself in a terrible situation, but he always does what I, in my opinion I thought was like the right thing to do. He he was making the best decision he could and it somehow always landed him in war in a worse position. You know, out of the frying pan into the in, into the fryer into the fire and um you, you just can't help but like that element of him that he's like he's never satisfied he will always he 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 will take his knocks on the chin and can then he'll stand right back up and be like okay now that I'm in this position what do I have to do next and he'll do that and it, it makes sense that he would do that and then worse things happen and so he has a better solution. And you're like, oh my gosh, he's he's gonna pull this one out. But no, that doesn't work either. And he has a better solution, and no. And it goes on and on and on and on like that, and it spirals and spirals and spirals. It's it, it's it's fascinating. <laughs> it's fascinating. And Pattinson Pattinson pulls that off. He is incredibly charming. He is has a way with words. He he makes it all he, he is the glue that keeps that film together. My number 4 is Jennifer Lawrence from Mother. I'm ashamed I'm I'm upset that this she she didn't get more respect and and love for this performance. This is pr- maybe even my favorite performance of hers. It's you know, she is this film. Everything that happens in this film happens from her perspective or over her shoulder or looking at her face. As I mentioned, uh, and you know, Aronofsky just lavishes the film around her. She is goes through the ringer. She is goes through all these different emotions, all these different experiences. She has to deal with all these different circumstances that are continuously and continuously escalating into more and more absurd positions. Ah, uh, it's man, it is un believable the way things go out of control so rapidly, and Lawrence plays them like they're, you know, like watching their ha- them happening, and then you feel like you get to the certain point in the movie where things have just reached a fever pitch of such proportions that It's no, it can't be real, you know, you can't possibly think that, oh, this is really happening, oh, this could really happen, all of a sudden, like, 20 seconds after the house was empty, it's, you know, swarming with people, and you feel like Lawrence gets to that point too, where all of a sudden it's just like, I can't handle this anymore, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do, I've been doing everything I thought was going to fix these problems, and none of it's working, I don't know how to solve it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much So I, I don't know I, I love this performance and it's a great movie Mother, Jennifer Lawrence My number three is Saoirse Ronan uh, Man, she She is Almost on par with Metcalf In, that, in, in Lady Bird They are so perfect together and uh Ronin is is such an <laughs> Ladybird is such a fascinating character. And I think Ronin gives that character great, great justice in her portrayal. She is kind of like a character you we all probably went to school with at one point or another, but I think there's just enough difference to her to make her unlike most of the people we've seen, or anybody we would really associate as like like a ladybird. She has incredible lines, perfect delivery. You get to see her grow through all these different relationships with Chalamet, who's in that movie as well, with Lucas Hedges, who was also in Three Billboards, with, uh, you know, as in the drama uh, program, um, as a student, in relationships with at her at home with her parents with her brother it's uh, you know it, it, you know you get to see every side of her and they're not all good sides but she is ladybird and she doesn't apologize for that she's she's a character that like I really get behind and and really support and want to succeed I think that there's a lot of incredible qualities to her, and Gerwig is able to, between Gerwig and Ronan, we are able to at, realize just how special she is, and I, I thought she's fantastic. Saoirse Ronan, Ladybird. My top two. So the top two are Hawkins and Circus. They were originally my one and my winners for the two separate categories, male and female. And I struggled so hard picking a winner out of these two. I think they are absolutely incredible. I think it is each of their best performances ever that I've seen. Uh, you know, now I haven't seen all of their performances, but I've seen many, and I I would I I and you know, to slight either of them It felt like such a disservice, uh, which is a huge shame, in my opinion. But for me, my number two is Sally Hawkins from The Shape of Water. She puts in a phenomenal performance as a mute woman who is an outsider and finds love with another outsider who just happens to be a fish person and develops a relationship with him that is beautiful and natural and and adorable and, and incredible. She has Octavia Spencer and Richard Jenkins by her side who aren't, they don't always see it eye to eye uh, but but they support her, and they are able to fill in gaps in her life. You know, you have Jenkins, who has his own um, romantic misgivings, where, where, whereas Octavia Spencer is incredibly talkative, which balances out perfectly. You have her brief interactions with Michael Stuhlbarg's character, who... ...is his own... ...his own kind of entity in that movie. Uh, and then her... ...very horrifying reaction... Uh, um, ...scenes that she shares with Michael Shannon... ...who the, as the villain is... Um, ...pretty potent. And... ...you get to see... ...all these different... ...facets... ...to Hawkins. Uh, you see... Uh, ...you see her as she is in bliss, when she dances and sings and you see her in turmoil as you know, she she realize you know she needs every, she needs help to save this man that she has grown attached to. and it doesn't seem like that anyone wants to help her. and she is frustrated. You see her in love you see her with pleasure, with pain, and then you find at the end of the movie that she is uh, she's home you know, that's kinda the best way to describe it, she finds her way home at the end of the movie, and it's really something beautiful to behold and Hawkins is amazing absolutely amazing But my number one is Andy Serkis in War for the Planet of the Apes. And I talked about this when we did score and when we did special effects. Uh, You know, this is the third film of the Planet of the Apes trilogy. The last film. Uh, Andy Serkis has played Caesar now three times. And he is able to add additional layers each time. He builds upon the foundations of the previous films and when we watched him in Rise of the Planet of the Apes he is a supporting I mean, he's a supporting character in that movie and he has a fer, he has a ferocity in him but he's intelligent and he just wants freedom and happiness and, and safety for himself and his apes the apes that live with him in dawn he tries to have peace and offers it to gary oldman and yet it's not humans that that ruin everything as they so often do it's it's koba toby kebel's character in 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 dawn who Completely derails everything by shooting, by by shooting Caesar, leaving him for dead, and blaming humans for it, instigating war. And both of those films each have their strengths. Uh, I think Dawn is much better than Rise, in my opinion. And for me, War is even better than Dawn, because it takes Caesar's character. A whole to a whole nother level now he's not this he's not just a leader anymore he's not just the figurehead the the representation of intelligent apes he is a father he is a a, an embattled grizzled veteran of this this conflict that has been going on for years he is a sympathetic character who has been betrayed by those he's trusted who has been considered weak by those around him for his trust and and desire for to find goodness in the hearts of humans. Uh he has has gone through a lot in these movies and in war it all kind of manifests ultimately. He 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 strikes out on, finally, in my opinion, the the first time, really, in the trilogy, where he's doing something that means something to him specifically. He's doing something that really doesn't have much to do with the rest of the apes around him. And it's a personal vendetta. After experiencing a very tragic loss, he... um, You know, he refuses to let things get worse he refuses to allow his own life and his own blood in this case you know his family to be mistreated and what makes that so interesting is how in the past you know, he's let himself be mistreated, and he's he's put himself on the line over and over and over again. And for the first time, those that he absolutely loves, the people that matter the most to him, we saw this in Rise when, you know, when when that neighbor was being very mean to John Lithgow's character, you know, Caesar was up at and, like, out the door, and beat the guy immediately. He cared. He loved Lithgow so much. And it it sh- you know that is the through line. You know, we see that in Dawn or in War when his his wife and son are killed. And none of this. None of this comes across more clearly than through Andy Circus. And he embodies Caesar, he is, you know, you can watch the progression of his vocal abilities as an ape uh, throughout the films, you know, he barely speaks English in the first movie, it's very stunted and jilted English in, in Dawn, but in War, he speaks just as well as I do, almost, it's a little gruffer, but it's there, and he is wrestling with his own demons he is conflicted he is acting impulsively he is doing things that are very uncharacteristic but it's all stems back from a place that that you know he we have the foundation for because we've seen this character for so long and it has finally resulted in just this this epitome of of motion capture of of animation uh, techniques and of just Andy Serkis understanding exactly how to act as if he were a an ape that acted like a human. You know, it's it's it, the the layers on that alone are are in 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 and of themselves impressive. I think Andy Serkis one of my favorite actors just in general, motion capture or not. And I think he's I'm so excited to see, like, what the next motion capture characters he's doing. Like, he's going to do all the motion capture for Mowgli. I'm so excited for that. And then I want to see, like, what comes next, you know? What other franchise, what other character could he take on in the same way he he brought life to Caesar? I think that is the most exciting thing. I can, you know, that's such a I, I don't even know. It's so exciting. You know, he was in Black Panther... Just having a ton of fun as Claw, but I, I would love to see him find another role like Caesar. I think he's fantastic. So for me, it's it's Andy Circus in War for the Planet of the Apes. And that just leaves us with Best Picture. There are five movies nominated for Best Picture. And they are. A Ghost Story, The Big Sick, Dunkirk, Lady Bird, and War for the Planet of the Apes. Now, this is only the second nomination for A Ghost Story. Uh, It was also nominated for Best Score, Original Score. This is the fourth nomination for War for the Planet of the Apes, previously winning Best Lead and Best Special Effects. This is the fifth nomination for Dunkirk and Big Sick. Big Sick has not yet won. Uh, Dunkirk has won Director and Score. And this is the sixth nomination for Lady Bird, which has won Supporting Actor, Screenplay, and Best Scene. Now, conventional knowledge uh, tells you that... um, anything can really be possible here, because if you look back at 2015, Best Picture was Mad Max Fury Road, which brought home its fifth award of that year, of the night. But if you look at 2016, Best Picture was The Handmaiden, which had not won anything at that point. Um, and so, like it always is, Best Picture is the only category that is based purely on the rating I gave a movie. So, my number five is The Big Sick with a 92. It is a film that is hilarious. It's it's heartbreaking. And it's incredibly well written. I can't help but enjoy myself watching it. But it's affecting. It's moving. It's It's personal. You can feel the... Uh, just the level of care that Emily Gordon and Kumail put into that movie and it comes across brilliantly through Michael Showalter's direction and all the performances therein. And I gave that movie a 92. I gave A Ghost Story, my number four, a 93. Uh, It's you know it only has two nominations. It's not really a movie that like (laughs) relies a lot on performances uh, I think the only thing, the next thing it was, it was contending for, were both scene for the pie eating scene and director for Lowry, and it's a really good, it's a fantastic movie. Uh it's you know whether or not you think it's pretentious to think that movie's great, I don't I Be that as it may, I thoroughly enjoy the film and. I just it, it, it's so fascinating it's it's so interesting and such a unique vision and a film I, I really do hope to to revisit in the near future which leaves me with my top three all of which I've seen twice um, and those uh, and all of which are, are bringing multiple wins into this category uh, and it's so close, you know. All these movies, like from Big Sick to my number one, 92, 93, 94, 95, 96. 96 is the highest-rated movie this year, and that's kind of low. I mean, last year the best movie was rated 97. Um, there were there was a, a 100, a 99, and a 98 back in 2015. So it's kind of a down year. All Things Told. But these movies are still some of my favorites ever. Uh, My number three is Dunkirk. It, you know, I I can't say enough good things about this movie. It's, it might not be my favorite Nolan movie, but it's his best directed movie. It has an incredible score. And it's just uh, such a successful movie. He's so successful at getting across this time sensitive time meaningful time element that I can't ignore it. It's you 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 you're watching it. You cannot ignore this movie. You cannot ignore what is happening. I was tell, I was thinking about this before watching a different movie and when you spend a lot of time with a character in a movie, you get to know them, you get to understand them, you get to care about them. Uh, and so when they have a dilemma, when they have a decision to make, when when their values are tested, you ha- you're you invested in them. And I get that. That's That's a very strong narrative device. That's good writing. But you don't need any of that when the dilemma is life and death. Because for me, as a human being, if another human being is in peril, I care. I don't need to know who they are. I don't need to know anything about them. If they are at the end of the rope, so to speak, I want them to make it. That's that's it's that simple. And Dunkirk exploits that human emotion brilliantly. And I use exploit in a positive in a positive sense. It's it's so perfect in what it does. It, it succeeds brilliantly in presenting you with thousands of people all of whom are on the brink of death uh, you you watch hundreds die throughout the course of the movie through drowning through burning alive shot by planes cannons gunfire etc oils spills all the things and we we see you know a handful of them survive that we recognize but hundreds of thousands of them survive and that is the most overwhelmingly positive thing ever like that's incredible and you're with it every step of the way and you you feel for them you have to my number 2 is ladybird it's so close i again it's so close but I just, Ladybird is a marvelous movie. Uh, it won three awards. It has some. It has the best screenplay, the best scene, the best supporting actor. But just so close to best picture, not quite. It it nearly gets over that hump, but it, it just isn't. Uh, you know, I gave it a ninety-five. Absolutely fantastic. Um, I guess I could do this too. Uh, so. The Big Sick is my 249th best film ever. Um, A Ghost Story is my 227th, moving up there. Dunkirk goes up to 164. And Lady Bird is number 106. So just outside of my top 100 of all time is Lady Bird. Uh, It's a very close You know, it falls right between 1921's The Kid and 1999's, I guess it's not there anymore, is it? Wouldn't it be a little lower? Now that it has a negative review, I might, it's, you know, it's right around Toy Story 2, I guess, is where it's at. Toy Story 2, On the Waterfront, Mary Poppins, it's right in that area. It's so great, I love it, I, I empathize and sympathize with it, even though, like, it's a movie that, on paper, doesn't seem like it has anything to do with me. And somehow, through the combination of the writing and directing and performances, it all feels so personal. I love it. Which leaves War for the Planet of the Apes. Which is my number 90 overall. So, none of these films break like top 89, I guess is the best, like, the most accurate way to put it, but even still, like, *Worf: Planet of the Apes is just an impressive feat, it features not just a great performance from Andy Serkis, you also have everyone else, all the other mo-caption artists in that movie, um, who I have to name by name, because I would feel disrespectful if I didn't. Uh, you have Steve Zahn as Bad Ape, Karen Canoval, who plays Maurice, Terry Notary, uh, who I mentioned, played Rocket, uh, Ty Olson who is the motion capture art, uh, performer for Red Donkey. You even have Toby Kebble, who reprises his role as Koba for a brief stint, uh, Michael Adam Thwaite as Luca, Judy Greer as Cornelia, uh, Sarah Canning as Lake. All these people are so impressive, and they're all so beautifully conceived, and that's not even including Amaya Miller, who plays the human, Woody Harrelson as the human, um, and uh, who's the other guy? Uh, Gabriel Chavaria as preacher in this movie. They're all fantastic. The effects are unparalleled, like, these are just real apes. That's, they literally are just real apes, And it's truly an impressive movie. Absolutely impressive. I'm... So, I was so surprised when the first movie came out that it was good. Uh, And then when Dawn came out and it was even better, it blew me away. And for War to somehow have improved upon Dawn, I just... That's it. It's it's incredible. It's amazing. And that's my best picture War for Planet of the Apes. So, this year little a stati- couple of statistics before we sign off. Two films with the most nominations, Shape of Water and Lady Bird. Shape of Water went home empty-handed with nominations for director, lead, supporting, screenplay, score and tactile effects. Lady Bird went away with three out of its six categories, missing in picture and director and lead, but winning supporting screenplay and scene. War of of the Apes and Call Me By Your Name both nominated four times. War won three, picture, lead, and special effects. Call Me By Your Name won song. And then Dunkirk and Big Sick both nominated five times, with Dunkirk winning for director and score, but nothing else. The only other film that won an award is Blade Runner twenty forty nine, one winning tactile effects. No film went uh, had a perfect night, um, and uh, for the this is the first year of the three that I've been doing this so far where there was not a single nomination for a documentary, and the only nomination for an, for a foreign language film was The Square for best scene. Uh yeah. Um, the best nominated animated film was World of Tomorrow, Episode 2, which had nominations in both Special Effects and Scene, Uh, but animated films also got nominations for Coco and the Lego Batman movie in Best Song, respectively. The worst rated film nominated for anything this year was The Greatest Showman, nominated for Best Original Song, and the... Uh, da, 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 da. The best movie that I saw that wasn't nominated for anything was Thelma, uh, which at brief times had been given nomination slots for director, lead actor, uh, and scene, but did not hold on to those in for long enough. But it is a fantastic film if you haven't seen it. Um, so that being said, if you Now that this has been released, if you check out the the Circle of Film Awards page for 2017, you will see the winners uh, bolded and um, pushed up against the rest of the pack. And you will also see the updated um, Circle of Film Awards overall page, where you can see that Lady Bird and the Shape of Water uh, with six nominations are too shy of the record held by Mad Max Fury Road, but they are above everything else that has ever been considered. Um, Ladybird and War for Planet of the Apes, with three wins each, uh, are two behind Mad Max Fury Road, but ahead of anything else, with Dunkirk tying 10 Cloverfield Lane with two wins. Nothing had a perfect year. Big Sick... The Sick had two nominations for In a Single Category in Supporting Actor for Holly Hunter and Ray Romano. Greta Gerwig has now had four nominations uh, in three years, adding her first win in Screenplay this year, as long as long along with her nomination for Director. Uh, Michael Giacchino got his second nomination in Original Score, having previously won in 2015 for Inside Out. Jordan Peele was nominated twice for director and screenplay and Guillermo del Toro was also nominated twice for director and screenplay. Uh, del Toro, Gerwig and Peele both nominated twice all this year uh, joining Park Chan-wook who was nominated twice for director and screenplay of The Handmaiden last year. Um, this year had the fewest film unique film winners in a single year with just five. Uh, you compare that to last year which had even after combining categories, only n- there were nine different films that won 10 total awards last year. Uh, and this year there were five films that won 10 total awards. So like I said, I did feel like this was a slightly down year uh, as compared to the overall quality of years past and that's reflected in some of the better films taking home multiple awards more frequently. And that's kind of it. We are currently working on... I am currently at work on the 2018 Circle Film Awards. You can check those out now. Uh, It's pretty much all Black Panther all the time, right? (laughs) When you look through the categories. But I'm sure that will change as the year goes by. And unlike last year, I'm not going to update the overall records and stats um, throughout the year as i change things uh, on the 2018 side of things because it's just going to be a little too much to track on the other hand uh, i have added a new page to my spreadsheet of course because i can never not be finished working on this thing where i have combined i needed what i really needed was a way to track who's ha- been nominated the most times and won the most times and all that stuff uh, in the Circle of Film Awards, separate from the Academy Awards, but like down to the names, and this current, I currently am tracking those statistics back through 2012 because I know who the projected winners and nominees for those years are. But, um, or rather, through 2015, I have know the winners, but through 2012, I know the nominees for sure. I have projected winners, but those are still subject to change. Uh, before I release those episodes, so um, yeah. So now we add Laurie Metcalf, um, Christopher Nolan, Andy Serkis, Hans Zimmer, and Greta Gerwig as the individuals who have won, and we currently have nobody who has won twice as of this moment. Uh, we have sixteen current winners for fifteen awards with. Andy Hull and Robert McDowell winning a joint award for a best score in 2016. Uh, there are currently 12 men and 4 women who have won, which I'm not entirely happy about, but uh, I do know that that number is trending down. Uh, if you look at the acting wins, with three lead actors Having won right now, Brie Larson, Andy Serkis, and Natalie Portman are the winners in those categories. Two women, one male. In supporting, you have Benicio Del Toro, John Goodman, and Laurie Metcalf. Two males, one female. Uh, All three director wins were male. George Miller, Denis Villeneuve, and Christopher Nolan. Uh, Two males, one female in screenplay. Aaron Sorkin, Mike Mills, and Greta Gerwig. And four males have won Best Score. Michael Giacchino, Hans Zimmer, Andy Hull, and Robert McDowell. But the most nominated person is Greta Gerwig uh, with four nominations. And that's a lot. That is a lot. So, uh, that's pretty much it for 2017. I hope I never watch another movie from 2017 again, but I think that's probably going to happen. I've now seen 365 films from 2017. That's one a day if I'd watched one a day last year. And I'm really ready to move on to a 2018 stuff. So, all that being said, uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode. We did keep it under four hours, but it's heading towards three and a half. Uh, if you would like to send, email me, or you can do that at circleoffilm@gmail.com. at gmail.com, Twitter at circleoffilm. Uh, if you want to check out the website, circlefilm.com, Circle of Film Awards, past and present, are there. And if you'd like to support the show and what I do, head over to patreon.com slash circleoffilm. I want to thank you so much for listening, especially if you made it through this whole episode. And as always, have a week.
1: So long, farewell, I'll be the same good night
0: I know she'll never leave me
1: Even as she fades from view